Mr. Steve Martin. Welcome to Podcast 42, the podcast that talks about life, the universe, and everything. And after that opening montage, I'm sure you've guessed what this episode is all about. But before I start this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also the YouTube channel, Chriskit. Plenty more content on there. The road to 200 subscribers. But thanks for listening so far, and your feedback is also appreciated. Any requests or show ideas to podcast42, all words, no numbers, at gmail.com. So, I've had a brief, uh, <coughs> brief vacation in the USA, and I'm still hiding out in my woodland residence in Georgia. A big shout out to all of the people who helped keep me upbeat on this trip. Particularly the asshole. He knows who he is. I know he'll be listening to this. And I wish you a speedy recovery from the Great Reduction. You know, I don't think this show is suitable for children. I don't think this show is suitable for anybody. (laughs) Oh dear. I'm sure we'll have a bit more of Stadler and Waldorf as the show goes on. So okay. This episode is all about what can only be described as pure mayhem and comedy at its finest. One of the most internationally recognisable collection of characters, easy for you to say, that have ever entertained across generations for many years, over 66 years now. In fact, I'll let them introduce themselves again, properly, and then we'll get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the Muppets! And on the air, the start and you've never seen before. It's time to get things started on the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, meditational. This is what we call Oh, I know that's a new version, but that takes me right back to the 1970s and Sunday nights. Yes, we're going to talk about the original Muppet Show that ran in the 70s. Not the new ones. We might talk about the movies. We might have a top 10 or two as we go along. But it's one of my all-time favourite shows. But they're more than just a show. So many iconic characters and sketches that have been a constant throughout my lifetime. Before that even, and hopefully beyond. But do you know exactly how many stunts Gonzo performed on The Muppet Show? Or which commercials Rolf was starring in way back in the 60s? Do you know who the greatest guests ever to grace The Muppet Theatre were? Do you know your bork from your pork? Or your bork 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 from your pork pork pork? Your mad Harry from your New Zealand? Do you know which amphibian American testified before US Congress? Well, you will by the time you finish listening to this episode. In fact, let's start right there. Did you know that Kermit the Frog is the only amphibian American which just rolls off the tongue of course, to ever testify before the United States Congress. In 2008, Kermit and a team of conservationists visited Washington and they were to speak to Congress about the association of zoos and aquariums and promote awareness of endangered amphibians. I also mentioned Gonzo the Great. 
Did you know that Gonzo the Great only performed a total of 20 stunts on The Muppet Show? The original show. Although he is best known for his weird, wild and wacky stunts and artistic performances, Gonzo did only perform 20 stunts in The Muppet Show's 120 episode run. Yes, 120. These stunts range from singing a song while tap dancing in oatmeal to conducting Liebestrauma and battling a crab. Did you also know that another perennial favourite, Miss Piggy, has also appeared on the cover of six magazines? These include People, The Saturday Evening Post, TV Guide and Life, which proclaimed Miss Piggy for President in 1980. Did you know that Rolf the Dog was the first Muppet turned superstar? He starred in the early 1960s appearing in commercials for Purina Dog Chow. This led to Rolf appearing as Jimmy Dean's sidekick on The Jimmy Dean Show. During the run of The Jimmy Dean Show, Rolf himself would receive more fan mail than Jimmy Dean. Did you know that Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem Band have never released an album? Despite being one of the most beloved bands of all time, the Electric Mayhem has never released a studio album. Yes, their music has appeared on soundtracks for eight films, two Christmas albums, and a handful of TV specials, but Dr. Teeth, Floyd, Janice, Zoot, and Animal have never released a solo album as a band. Who do we need to petition to make this happen? But before I get overexcited on this subject and go any further, for those of you who are maybe not so familiar with the Muppets, or for those of you who are just as big a fan as I am of our felt-covered friends, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back, way back, long before the lights were lit and we faced the music. Let's go backwards in time and start at the beginning. It's 1955. The Mickey Mouse Club and Gunsmoke debuted on ABC. Gas was 23 cents a gallon. Disneyland opened in California on July the 17th. But a certain James Maury Henson, born on September the 24th, 1936, in Greenville, Mississippi, was working for WTOP-TV while attending Northwestern High School, creating puppets for a Saturday morning children's show called The Junior Morning Show. He enrolled at the University of Maryland, College Park, as a studio arts major upon graduation, thinking that he might become a commercial artist. A puppetry class offered in the Applied Arts Department introduced him to the craft and textiles courses in the College of Home Economics. He graduated in 1960 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Home Economics. But as a freshman in 1955, he created Sam and Friends, a five-minute puppet show for WRC-TV. The characters on Sam and Friends were forerunners of the Muppets, and the show included a prototype of Henson's most famous character, but then just called Kermit. He remained at WRC from 1954 to 1961. More about that timeline shortly. In Sam and Friends, Henson began experimenting with techniques that changed the way in which puppetry was used on television, including using the frame defined by the camera shot to allow the puppet performer to work from off-camera. He believed that television puppets needed to have life and sensitivity, and began making characters from flexible, fabric-covered foam rubber, allowing them to express a wider array of emotions. At a time when many puppets were made of carved wood, a marionette's arms are manipulated by strings, but Henson used rods to move his puppet's arms, or his Muppet's arms, allowing greater control of expression. Additionally, he wanted the Muppet characters to speak more creatively than was possible for previous puppets, which had random mouth movements, so he used precise mouth movements to match the dialogue. When Henson began work on Sam and Friends, he asked fellow University of Maryland senior Jane Nebel to assist him. The show was a financial success, but he began to have doubts about going into a career performing with puppets once he graduated. He spent several months in Europe, where he was inspired by European puppet performers who looked on their work as an art form. He began dating Jane shortly after his return to the United States. 
But in the 66 years since they made their debut on the local Washington DC broadcaster Semon Friends way back in 1955, the Muppets have grown to inhabit a surprisingly resilient corner of popular culture. The word Muppet itself has even entered everyday language, admittedly as an unflattering term. Although Salmon Friends was taped and aired twice daily as the local series in Washington DC, and it was in black and white and later in colour, on weeknights from May the 9th 1955 to December 15, 1961. Most of the original episodes were never recorded, and some that were have been lost. A few surviving episodes actually can be found on YouTube, I should leave a link to that in the show notes, and some of them have been digitally archived by the Jim Henson Company. Some have also been documented by either the Henson Archives or newspaper articles published while the show was still on air. How about a quick clip from Sam and Friends? See if you recognise our green friend in this, although he was in black and white at the time. Here we go. Sam and Friends is brought to you by Asco. I'm honored to be in the studio with two very distinguished NBC newsmen, and I'm going to chat with them a few minutes to learn something of their off-camera personalities. You know how when a newsman is giving his news, he's so self-controlled and precise? Well, we want these two guys just to relax and enjoy a couple moments of pleasant conversation. Here first we have... Chad Huntley, NBC News, New York. Yes, indeed, but let's not be quite so formal. Why don't you just call me Kermit, and I'll call you, uh, uh, well, what would you like me to call you? Chet Huntley. Oh, okay, Chet Huntley. Tell me, as a newsman, you're in a position to evaluate all the news and wire services. What do you think is the very best news service? NBC News. Oh, is that right? You like NBC News best? Any particular NBC News office? Washington? Los Angeles? New York. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that figures you working there and all. One last question, Chet. I'm sure you're familiar with our show Sam and Friends in Washington, D.C. Uh, I wonder who your favorite character is. Sam? York? Me? Harry? York. You say York? Gee, that's nice. Well, I'll be sure to tell him, and thank you very much for being our guest. Our next guest, I'm sure you all know, but I'll let him introduce himself. David Brinkley, NBC News, Washington. You know, I bet some of the smart alecks in the audience have already figured out what you're going to say when I talk to you. But never mind them. Just relax and be yourself, you know. First, let's talk about all-time great newsmen. Now, if you were to name the best newsmen you know, I guess you'd name Edward R. Murrow, Morgan Beatty, Lowell Thomas. And David Brinkley. Yes, of course. And then there's Frank Blair and Richard Harkness and... Chad Hartley. All right, Chad, we've finished with you. We're talking to Dave now. You know, Dave, NBC has such a great news staff, but CBS does a good job, too. Well, where do you suppose they get all their news tips? NBC News. Well, I see the two fellows that have a high opinion of NBC News are Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. Brinkley. David Brinkley. Oh, yes, I meant Brinkley. Now then, one last question of a political nature. Thinking in terms of the 1964 presidential race, who do you think will be elected? You know, what's the first name for president that comes into your head? Washington. Ho, ho! Always a snappy and humorous reply from David Brinkley. Brinkley? Yes, of course, Brinkley. This has been an interview of Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, and this program has come to you from... NBC News, New York. No, no, this program is coming from... NBC News, Washington. New York. Washington. New York. Washington. Oh, let's not fight, fellas. The program is coming to you from... Washington. Right! 
I do enjoy that clip, a real blast from the past, and a real part of Muppet Arna? Muppet history? Is that the word? Anyway, the series focused mostly on Sam, a bald-headed, big-eared human who escaped the harshness of everyday life with the help of his abstract friends that he created based on parts of his life. His friends included Yorick, Harry the Hipster, Professor Madcliffe, Chicken Liver, and the lizard-like character named Kermit, who obviously had some amphibious evolution later in his life cycle, but more about him as this goes on for sure. Early in its run, the show mostly featured the puppet lip-syncing to popular songs of the day. If the song was by a female performer, the puppet would simply wear a wig while singing. It was that simple. Later, formal sketches were drawn up, many spoofing well-known television shows at the time, particularly including the series which followed Sam and Friends in the Washington market, The Huntley Brinkley Report. That's where that last sketch came from. A popular early sketch that would be used often in the subsequent Henson productions was Inchworm, in which a character, often Kermit, would nibble on what looked like a worm, but would ultimately turn out to be the tongue or the nose of the monster Big V, who would subsequently devour him. Bob Payne once substituted for Jim Henson while he was in Europe. Jerry Jewell also worked on the show toward the end of its run, where he substituted for Jane Henson. Starting in 1959, advertisements for SK Meats would appear at the end of the show, as well as Wilkins Coffee. The latter featured two Muppets created exclusively for the spots. They were Wilkins and Wontkins. While Payne, Jewell and Jane Henson all puppeteered in the series alongside Jim Henson, Jim provided all of the voices himself. Unless the voices were taken from a record. So, a quick summary of the characters. Sam, performed by Jim, a bald-headed humanoid-like character who was the main character of the series. Sam never spoke though, but would lip-sync to any song. His puppet was made of papier-mâché. Kermit, we've also talked about him, he was also performed by Jim Henson, although he had a more Saurian-like appearance in Sam and Friends. Harry the Hipster, also performed by Jim. A beatnik, he resembled a black sock puppet with shades and spoken hip-slang. Harry was one of the first Muppets designed and built by Jim Henson. Yorick, again performed by Jim, a voracious puppet that resembled a rock head. Yorick has been known for appearing with Kermit in a segment where Kermit sang, I've grown accustomed to your face, where Yorick tried to eat Kermit's foot. His puppet was made of papier-mâché with a tube in his mouth that allowed him to swallow things. Professor Madcliffe, performed by Jim Henson again, a tall-headed professor with big eyes and a moustache. That's moustache spelled M-O-U-S-T-A-C-H-E, and not for those of you in Georgia, M-U-S-T-A-C-H-E. Just a quick correction for you there. Get the grammar right. Get the spelling right. You know who I'm talking to. Professor Madcliffe had a loud and energetic personality. He made most of his appearances, though, in commercials. Chicken Liver, performed by Jim again, a humanoid character with a tall head and a big nose. He has been described as a dramatic storyteller and believes that the show lacked culture. There was Hank and Frank, two bald humanoids that served as the show's bit players. They took on the roles of Chet Huntley and David Brinkley in the spoof interview we heard earlier with Kermit. There was Mushmelon, a small yellow monster with a permanent grimace. He was a favourite among the younger audiences. There was Icky Yunk, a great name, a sinister-looking green snake sporting a pair of arms. There was Henrietta, performed by Jerry Jewell, a pink female creature of indeterminable species. There's lots of indeterminable species throughout the Muppet shows. Moldy Hair, a humanoid character again with orange-red skin, a big nose and hair over his eyes. Omar, also performed by Jim Henson, a beaked humanoid with a papier-mâché face, described as the nomadic type. And last but not least, Pierre, the French rat, also performed by James Henson. He was one of Jim Henson's first puppets. Pierre was embodied as a puppet made from plastic wood. The series was really the first form of puppet media not to incorporate a physical proscenium arch, typical of such works. 
Presenium Arch is the archway that goes around theatre stages, and also the old puppet shows such as Punch and Judy would also use a Presenium Arch. A very small one, of course. But Sam and Friends relied instead on the natural framing of the television set through which it was viewed. However, in 1966, John Gantz Cooney and Lloyd Morissette began developing a children's educational television program, and they approached Henson to design a cast of Muppet characters. Produced by the Children's Television Workshop, the program debuted as, that's right, Sesame Street in 1969. Actually, I did skip a little bit there from the 60s. I should really talk a little bit more about pre-Muppet era and pre-Sesame Street era. Let's start with a quick timeline of the 60s. 1960, the Muppets appeared on the Today Show for the first time. 61, Jerry Jewell joined the Muppets Incorporated as a puppeteer and writer. 1961, the Muppets began regular appearances on the Today Show. 1961, Bernie Brillstein became the Muppets agent. The Muppets had an agent, wow. In 1962, they appeared on the Mad Mad World pilot episode. And also in 62, Tales of the Tinker D, taped in Atlanta. A lot of things seem to have been filmed or taped in Atlanta. In 1962, Don Sarling joins the Muppets Incorporated and builds Rolf the Dog for the Purina Dog Food commercial. In 1963, an important time, Frank Oz joined Muppets. Also in 63, the Muppets moved to New York. Did they take over Manhattan? More about that later, with a small office on 53rd Street. In 64, Kermit and Big V perform Inchworm on the Jack Parr Show. In 1964, Time Peace begins production. More on that in a second. Yes, all puns intended. 1965, Jerry Nelson joins Muppets. And also in 1965, Hey Cinderella pilot was taped. Now, Hey Cinderella is a one-hour special, which tells a cracked version of the classic fairy tale, Cinderella. If debuted on the Canadian network CBC on March the 16th, 1969. It was broadcast in the US a year later, debuting on ABC on April the 10th, 1970. Now, why do I speak about that one? Well, one, I actually saw the original puppets from that show recently. More about that later, I promise. But also, filmed in Toronto in the fall of 1968, the special featured Kermit as a frog for the first time. Redesigned with a fringed collar and flippers. While Hey Cinderella was shot less than a year before Sesame Street went into production, Kermit was already recognised as a frog by the time the special was broadcast on ABC in 1970, but that was several months after Sesame Street's debut. In effect, the initial airing of Hey Cinderella, which was sponsored by RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company, drew some criticism, particularly with Kermit providing commercial lead-ins. Because of this, various news stories, namely Look and Time magazine, cited that Kermit would be dropped from Sesame Street come the second season. But ultimately, he returned for future appearances. Also, I mentioned Timepiece. That had its first screening in 1965 at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Now, what was Timepiece, I hear you say? Timepiece, well, is an experimental short live-action film produced, directed, and written by Jim Henson, who also played the leading role. He began the project in the spring of 1965, initially titling it Time To Go, and continued to work on it for nearly a year between commercial projects and various Muppet television appearances. The short film premiered on May the 6th, 1965 at the Museum of Modern Art and was distributed through Pathé Contemporary Films to Arthouse Theatres and the Film Festival Circuit. It played in New York City along with the French feature, A Man and a Woman, or is that A Man and a Woman? But Timepiece is a surrealist film. It runs slightly less than nine minutes, 
and it follows a nameless man who lies in a hospital bed awaiting examination by a doctor through a wide range of experiences. Mundane daily activities are intercut with surreal fantasy and pop culture references. The relentless passage of time is a recurring motif, both visually, through various clocks and orally, through a rhythmic percussion soundtrack which ticks away throughout. Le tic, le toc. This is getting very French, this episode, all of a sudden. Mon dieu. Kermit le Grenouille. Anyway, I digress. Key set pieces of timepiece included an examination of workplace drudgery, a prolonged dinner sequence, intended as a spoof of a scene from the film Tom Jones, and a nightclub visit satirising the striptease, including a dancing roast chicken and a marionette skeleton. The man also rides a pogo stick, shoots the Mona Lisa, escapes from prison, and gradually applies a coat of pink paint to a living elephant. He assumes different costumes and identities throughout, from Tarzan to a cowboy, and repeatedly utters the only dialogue in the film, a plaintive cry of help, because of the increasingly incongruous and perilous positions. Apart from the rapid montage, cutting and superimposition of objects, Jim Henson used animation heavily to create an impressionistic feel. He personally animated scenes of moving patterns, anticipating those later utilised in various Sesame Street inserts. We've all seen those. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You, you get the idea. If you've watched Sesame Street, you do anyway. Don Salin supervised the use of pixelation and reverse motion to further stylize the movements. If you can find that, go watch it. Let's just see how many drugs Jim Henson did during that period. Anyway, let's get on with this, shall we? By 1969, as I said, the Sesame Street pilot and first episode taped... Episode number one is shown November the 10th, 1969, with Big Bird Carol Spinney first created, being the first Muppet to appear on the street. Jim Henson and his creative team became closely involved with Sesame Street during the years that followed. Henson waived his performance fee in exchange for retaining ownership rights to the Muppet characters created for the programme. Sesame Street garnered a positive response, and the Muppets' involvement in the series was said to be a vital component of its increasing popularity, providing an effective and pleasurable viewing experience. But it was also a great presentation for its educational curriculum. It hasn't been an easy journey for the merry band of Muppets, though. With rights issues flinging their ownership this way and that over the years, the sad, untimely death of Jim Henson in 1990, feuds over casting, and the variable quality of some of the projects starring the troupe, in fact, the story of the Muppets is an epic saga in its own right. Though they were created in 1955, they really didn't hit the spotlight until 69 with Sesame Street. Beloved characters such as Big Bird, Bert and Ernie, hey Bert, and Oscar the Grouch. Although Cookie Monster is still my favourite. Maybe have a clip of him later. But the Muppets, surprisingly, first came into their own via the UK, with Elstree Studios filmed ATV series The Muppet Show which ran from 1976 to 1981. Primetime Podcast 42 Childhood on ITV. At its height, attracting audience of 14 million plus in its Sunday evening early slot. So let's get on with it. Let's talk about the original The Muppet Show. Hit it. Thank you. 
It's time to get things started on the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational. This is what we call the Muppet Show. Wait, wake me when the show starts. It's already been on a while. Wake me when it's over. Ah, where to start? Well, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start, apparently somebody once said. Okay, the Muppets the beginning. Well, there was initially two pilots of what would become the Muppet Show. They were broadcast in 1974 and 1975. Unusually titled, The Muppet Show Sex and Violence aired on ABC on March 19th, 1975 and was shot on December 10th to 16th, 1974. As I said, it was one of two pilots produced for The Muppet Show, the other pilot being The Muppet's Valentine Show, which had previously aired in 1974. The Muppet's Valentine Show was the first Muppet Show pilot and starred Mia Farrow. The hosting duties are attended to by a character called Wally. Other characters included George the Janitor, Mildred Huxtetter, Droop, Brewster and Crazy Donald, called Crazy Harry in later episodes. Kermit the Frog has a supporting role. Most of the remaining characters appearing were from previous Jim Henson productions. In the second pilot episode for The Muppet Show, The Muppet Show Sex and Violence, viewers got glimpses of several of the future Muppet stars. Although Kermit does appear briefly, the backstage boss of this variety show is called Nigel, the show's future band leader. Miss Piggy makes a brief appearance in a parody of Planet of the Apes and the Twilight Zone episode Eye of the Beholder. Meanwhile, personifications of a variety of sins romp around backstage waiting for auditions for the Seven Deadly Sins pageant. Debuting are Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, the Swedish Chef, Sam the Eagle and Statler and Waldorf. But they're grumbling from a living room instead of a theatre box. In this half hour variety special, the Muppets parody the proliferation of sex and violence on television. Nigel, Sam the Eagle, the hippie guitarist Floyd prepare for a pageant based on the seven deadly sins, with Muppets representing each of the sins, envy, anger, gluttony, vanity, lust, avarice and sloth. Ooh, that's a good word, sloth. The original working title for this special was actually the Muppet Nonsense Show. Can't beat a bit of nonsense. Stop that nonsense, I think Sam Eagle once said. What kind of nonsense would you like then? I think that was Rizzo the Rat. Or Rizzo Rat even, get the names right. But in 1975, Jim Henson created The Muppet Show Pitch Reel, which was a 25-minute commercial to help him sell The Muppet Show to CBS. The reel was intended to show CBS executives some of The Muppets' strongest performances, spotlight the versatility of The Muppets, and convey Henson's unique brand of humour. The reel even mentions many of the network executives who'd be watching it by name. The bulk of the pitch reel features Kermit introducing Muppet clips, mainly highlights from The Muppet pilots that I just talked about. There were assorted Muppet variety show appearances and segments of Kermit interacting with Sher and Chaz Bono that were specially taped while Henson was on the set of the Sher series. The framing sequences with Kermit were written by Jim Henson and George Slatter and these were filmed at Bevington Stage in Los Angeles. The final two minutes of the reel features Leo from the Muppet meeting films. He comes on camera in place of Kermit. He announces that Jim Henson and CBS executive George Slatter have merged into one being to bring to television The Muppet Show, a show that would be loved and adored by Nielsen families all over the country. Actually, I was going to tell you more about this, the reel itself, the little two minute bit. How about I just play it? But before I do, I did find out when I was researching this, although Leo's is a powerful speech, the storyboards for the presentation from August the 19th of that year actually indicated that Kermit was originally intended to deliver the final monologue. Does it work? Does it not? You decide. Either way, CBS did not pick up the series. 
but Henson continued to use the reel to pitch the show to other networks, co-producers and syndicates. Here we go, here's Leo's speech at the end of the pitch reel. In conclusion, I would like to point out that it is time for a revolutionary new look in primetime variety television, and the combination of the Muppets and George Slaughter can bring this to the world. Yes, for over 20 years, Jim Henson here and the dedicated group of people that make up the Muppets have been developing the art of television puppetry to heights that were never before considered possible. And at the same time, George Slaughter here has been developing and creating new forms in television comedy that have changed the very face of primetime television. From the same creative minds that brought you Ralph of the Jimmy Dean Show, Laugh-In, Sesame Street, The Share Show, Turn On. What? Oh, anyhow. These two giants of the industry have fused their creative juices into one great explosion of brilliant television programming. And what is this fusion of creative juices called? The Muppet Show. A show that will be loved and adored by every Nielsen home in the country. Small children will love the cute, cuddly characters. Young people will love the fresh and innovative comedy. College kids and intellectual eggheads will love the underlying symbolism of everything. Freaky, long-haired, dirty, cynical hippies will love our freaky, long-haired, dirty, cynical Muppets because that is what show business is all about. Yes, and when this show hits, the careers of the men who made the decision to put this show on the air will skyrocket. People like Bob Wood, Lee Curlin, Perry Lafferty, Oscar Katz, and even Tom Swafford will become stars in their own right. The names of these men will become household words like stove, sink, toilet, no, 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 like patriotism, apple pie, and mother. Friends, the United States of America needs the Muppet Show, and you should buy this show. Now, we're not pulling any punches here. I mean, there's nothing subtle about this pitch. So buy the show and put it on the air, and we'll all be famous. The Muppets will be famous, and CBS will be famous because we'll have a hit show on our hands, and we'll all get temperamental and hard to work with, but you won't care because we'll all make a lot of money, and Slaughter and Henson will be happy, and you will be happy, and Kermit's mother will be happy, and God will look down on us and smile on us, and he will say, let them have a 40 share. I do love the way that builds up, and Leo does a really good job, I think. It's just a shame that nobody ever picked up on it. I think it's due to a conscious effort to make more adult comedy. The two pilots were produced with more mature themes, but the three American networks of the time all passed on the show. But who would find it funny? Of course. Which nation has the best sense of humour in the world? It was based on these specials that the UK's ATV proprietor, Lou Grade, showed an interest, bringing Kermit across the pond. Grade agreed to finance the Elstree Studios-based production of The Muppet Show on ATV as part of the ITV network, put the show on the air across the UK with a worldwide syndication deal to follow. So Kermit the Frog was created by Henson for Sesame Street, but became the master of ceremonies for a chaotic theatre show featuring a host of new characters, including Miss Piggy, Gonzo, Fozzy Bear, and countless others that we will come to shortly. In the land where Punch and Judy shows still enjoyed widespread popularity, it's no surprise that the show seemed more accessible to British audiences. But with a freer, creative atmosphere than the US networks were offering, the show's trademark anarchy reigned. 
The result is a primetime show that almost plays like a more condensed and family-friendly version of Saturday Night Live, complete with surreal skits and celebrity guest hosts. The first of the 24 episodes of Season 1 aired in the UK on the 5th of September 1976, and subsequently the show ran in the UK until the 19th of August 1980, with a total of 120 episodes over five seasons. It actually showed for the first time in the US on April the 23rd, 1977, after the success in the UK with audiences of over 14 million people, which is pretty good for a small country like the UK, a small country with a big sense of humor. As I also mentioned earlier, it was filmed in the Elstree Studios in the UK. Let's have a bit more about that. Historically, the name Elstree Studios has referred to several film studios that were based in the town of Elstree and Boreham Wood in Hertfordshire, England. Most of these studios are now closed, sadly, and the phrase is commonly used as the name of the Elstree Film and Television Studios, which was a privately run production facility owned by Hartsmere Borough Council. The Jim Henson Company actually filmed several movies at the studio, and The Muppet Show was filmed at one of the Elstree Studios in its ITV days. George Lucas was also a regular at the studio, making the Star Wars and Indiana Jones films at Elstree. In 2011, the Elstree area established its own Walk of Fame, similar to that in Hollywood. A series of stars set in the pavement include one for Jim Henson, which is also accompanied by a plaque showcasing highlights from his career dedicated in 2015. The star is in the general area of the Station Road entrance to the Elstree and Borehamwood Station, just in case you want to go look for it, while the plaque is closer to the corner of Alum Lane, just near the roundabout. So if you're ever passing that area, go check it out. So The Muppet Show was, is, a half-hour variety show in which Kermit the Frog and The Muppets put on a weekly musical comedy review at the Muppet Theatre. Unfortunately for them, as we all know and love, things never quite go according to plan, for The Muppets or for their weekly guest stars. While Kermit had featured extensively in the programmes in the past, this show marked the introduction of a large, varied cast. As I said, the hapless comedian Fozzie. You mean the comedians are bare? The diva superstar Miss Piggy? the lunatic daredevil artiste Gonzo, the wild drummer Animal, the unintelligible book-de-book-de-book Swedish chef, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, and his hapless assistant Beaker of Muppet Labs, and many others. Their performances consistently fail to entertain the old curmudgeons, Statler and Waldorf, who provide a running commentary of wisecracks, as you might hear throughout this show. The action in each episode is balanced between the on-stage acts and the frantic activity backstage. One of the very few exceptions of this is episode 110, in which almost all sketches and skits are actually depicted on stage for a change. Definitely no scooter getting trampled by the chickens or the penguins on that one. The concept was reminiscent of old-time radio shows like the Jack Benny programme, where the star struggled to put on a weekly show amidst personal problems and an often uncooperative cast. Actually, more about radio comedy in future episodes. Watch this space. But during its run, The Muppet Show was broadcast in over 100 countries, leading time to declare it the most popular television entertainment now being produced on Earth. As I said earlier, in keeping with the TV variety show format, each episode showcased a celebrity guest star or a duo who were the only humans to appear on the show. As noted in Jim Henson The Works, from Jim's point of view, this would help provide a bridge between the Muppet world and the audience. From ITC's point of view, it would make the show easier to promote. In the first season, Kermit introduced them at the start of the theme song and in a lyric after a joke by Fozzie. For the second season onward, the guest was invariably introduced in the cold open. During the first season, their involvement was limited primarily to the on-stage performances, 
showcases for the guests' comedic or musical skills. They also regularly participated in comedic blackouts, talk spots and panel discussions. As early as the first season, the fighting Rita Moreno and the eerie Vincent Price gave a special tone to the episode that they appeared in. As the series wore on, the guests became more and more crucial, becoming involved in the backstage plots. For example, Gonzo falling in love with Madeleine Kahn, James Coco helping Kermit to improve the numbers, or even expressing dissatisfaction with the show, John Cleese, J.P. Morgan, or even as featured performance in elaborate theme stories. One of the more extreme examples came in the final season with episode 507, as guest star Glenda Jackson revealed herself to be a ruthless pirate and commandeers the theatre. That's the wackiness I love about this show. The guest roster included a range of performers from familiar film and television personalities and stage theatre veterans to ballet dancers, country singers, rock stars, experimental pantomime artists and even a ventriloquist or two. The majority of the guest stars during the first season were either personal friends of the production team, for example first season head writer Jack Burns's former comedy partner Avery Schreiber was a guest, or a client of Jim Henson's agent Bernie Brillstein. By the second season, thanks in part to Rudolf Nureyev's famous guest appearance, the show started to attract more and more celebrities, and eventually celebrities were asking to appear on the show. Whenever a star was booked to appear on the show, they would be asked if there were any characters who they wanted to work with. Most of them wanted to work with either Kermit or Miss Piggy. However, the producers generally preferred it if guest stars would have been more open to lesser known characters to allow for fresher material for writers. In that regard, some stars who proved that flexible included Glenda Jackson, who insisted she would be up for any idea presented. While John Cleese of the Monty Python fame co-wrote his own material for the producers to use. Some of the more memorable guest star moments include the following. Rita Moreno's performance of Fever, backed by Animal on the Drums. Rudolf Nureyev dancing with a pig ballerina, Harry Belafonte singing Turn the World Around, accompanied by African masks, Alice Cooper singing Schools Out with the monsters near a haunted castle, John Cleese being forced into a closing number, Gene Kelly giving Kermit a dance lesson, and Raquel Welsh performing a song and dance number with a giant spider. In addition to showcasing the guests' familiar skills, or shticks, stars occasionally performed against type, such as Nureyev was tap dancing to top hat, white tie and tails, or screen tough guy James Coburn focusing on zen meditation and calmness. Some episodes played on the guests' established star text, as specific characters, such as Christopher Reeve's Superman and Linda Carter's Wonder Woman. Roger Moore's appearance played ironically off his James Bond persona, as Moore preferred to do it the whimsical talk to the animals over any spy heroics. Occasionally the guests' alter egos even appeared directly, such as the one and only Peter Sellers, as Inspector Jacques Clouseau. Is it berm? The minky has a berm. Oh, get away from the French again, keep on track. But more on Peter Sellers on another episode for sure. There was Gilda Radner as Emily Latella, or Carol Burnett's janitor character. The most elaborate example, however, came in episode 417, as the cast of Star Wars appeared as themselves, continuing their space opera dramatics, while Luke Skywalker's portrayer, Mark Hamill, also appeared briefly as himself, introduced as Luke's cousin. Guest star Rita Moreno actually won an Emmy Award for her appearance on the show, while Bernadette Peters and Peter Sellers were also nominated for their work. As I said, Jack Burns was the head writer during the first season, and most of the humour during that season was gag-based. Many recurring sketches, including At the Dance, Veterinarian's Hospital, The Talking Houses, Blackouts, and Fozzie's monologues, of course, they all focused heavily on jokes. After the first season, The Talking Houses and Blackouts were dropped, while At the Dance and Fozzie's monologues were both featured less often, or tied to a specific gimmick or theme. 
Many of the backstage plots during the first season also revolved around running gags such as episode 115 with Fozzie subjecting Kermit to an endless stream of puns. Oh, we love a good pun on this podcast. More of those for sure as we go on. This was because after the first season, Jack Burns stepped down and Jerry Jewell took over as head writer. When Jerry Jewell became the head writer, the show became more character-based. Later episodes focused more on the backstage plots than the onstage sketches. Some examples include episode 502, where Kermit actually fired Miss Piggy, and episode 515, where Gonzo turned the show into a dance marathon. Other changes included the opening theme song. The lyrics have stayed the same, but what happens during the beginning has changed at least three times. As I said previously, the first country to air the series was the United Kingdom. The first season began airing on Sunday, September 5th, 1976, with the Joel Grey episode. Most of the different regional channels, ITV is a regional company in the UK, made up of lots of different regions at the time. It's more like one company now though. But the different regional channels aired the Muppet Show on the same day, but not always at the same time. For example, Border Television, the franchise that covered the England-Scotland border region, aired the series at 4.20pm, while Ulster Television, the franchise that covered Northern Ireland, aired the series at 4.15pm. One exception was LWT, London Weekend Television, the franchise that covers Greater London and the home counties at weekends, specifically Friday night until Monday morning, which initially aired the series on Sunday nights from October 24th, 1976, before changing to Saturday nights from January 15th, 1977. All completely useless information that I found riveting. 16 episodes aired consecutively between September and December 1976, before the show took a one-week break over Christmas, resuming in the new year for another five weeks beginning with the Valerie Harper episode and concluding with the late, great Bruce Forsyth episode. This episode was listed by contemporary publications as being the last of the season, leaving three episodes, Connie Stevens, Vincent Price and Ethel Merman, unaired. Conversely, LWT and Anglia Television, the franchise that covered the East of England region, this could be a whole episode in its own right, they aired those episodes in February 1977, after which both channels aired some of the earlier episodes they had missed. Confused? You will be, because this is British television at its finest. Or is this just Britain at its finest anyway? <laughs> so on Easter Saturday, April 9th, 1977, ITV networked a special compilation edition entitled Best of the Muppets featuring guests Rita Moreno and Ethel Merman from April 16th to July the 16th. Whew, this is so confusing. The second season debuted on Friday, September the 30th, 1977, ooh, shortly after Elvis died and I was six, beginning with the George Burns episode. As with the previous season, ITV did not fully network the series, again, putting it on different times in LWT, Border, Grampian, Anglia TV, all of those, it was always different times. But at least the whole country could see it. And eventually, ITV got its act together. And on New Year's Day 1978, ITV fully networked the series on Sundays at 7.15pm. That's the time I always remember it from. They began with the Peter Sellers episode and concluded with the Petula Clark episode on March the 12th, 1978. The following week, ITV began airing episodes from the then-in-production third season, beginning with the Roy Clark episode. In total, ITV aired six episodes from the third production block, concluding with the Loretta Lynn episode on April 23rd, 1978. After a seven-month break, though, the remaining episodes of the third season debuted on Friday, November 17th, 1978, beginning with the Raquel Welsh episode. Fast forward to August 10th, 1979, Union members of the Association of Cinematograph Television and Allied Technicians, the ACTT for short, went on strike over a pay rise dispute. 
and for 10 straight weeks there was a complete blackout in all the regions. The dispute was finally resolved on October the 22nd, 1979, and ITV resumed transmission on October the 24th, 1979 with the Special National Service. Following a news bulletin from ITN, the Independent Television News, the fourth season of The Muppet Show began that night at 6.05pm, starting with the Dudley Moore episode. The remainder of the season was fully networked on Friday nights at 7pm, beginning with the Crystal Gale episode on November 2nd, 1979, and concluding with the Diana Ross episode on April 4th, 1979. The fifth and final season debuted on Sunday, October 5th, 1980, beginning with the Roger Moore episode, and the series was again fully networked by ITV and aired at 5.30pm, concluding with the Shirley Bassey episode on Sunday, March 15th, 1980. The following year, 1981, ITV aired a repeat series of The Muppet Show featuring episodes from the second and third series. Following this, there was a second repeat series, as the show was now syndicated with great success in the US, it attracted a host of guest stars willing to be ribbed by the puppets, as I've said, Roger Moore, Rudolf Nureyev, Liza Minnelli, Julie Andrews, Elton John, Liberace, Bob Hope, John Cleese, Gene Kelly, Diana Ross, and even Debbie Harry to name but a few. The Muppets had no problem attracting the major stars of the time. And the popularity of the Muppets was such that they even generated two hit singles. The atypically plaintive Halfway Down the Stairs, sung by Kermit's young nephew Robin, reaching number seven in the UK in 1977, while the oft-covered Rainbow Connection gained the number 25 spot in the US two years later. Actually, I think I've done a version of that on my Chris Kit YouTube channel, but that was my normal version. Maybe one day I'll upload my Kermit version too. Or maybe I should just record it for the end of this episode. Watch out for the end. And aside from the catchy Muppet Show theme tune, our puppet friends are possibly best known for their cover of Piero Milani's Manamana. Manamana. Don't let me start that. This will be a long episode. It's long enough as it is already, but let's keep going. As that's a song guaranteed to amuse or drive one to distraction in equal measure, as any frequent listener to this podcast will appreciate, I'm sure. Actually, before I forget, I did talk about Halfway Down the Stairs. Well, Halfway Down is a poem by... A. A. Milne, and it was included in the 1924 collection When We Were Young. A. A. Milne, is that a Disney connection? Yes, the author of Winnie the Pooh, and the presumed narrator of the poem is actually one, Master Christopher Robin, and the song Halfway Down the Stairs was created from the poem by Harold Fraser Simpson, who put many of A. A. Milne's poems to music. Just a little aside there, but there is yet another connection to the world of Disney. Who'd have thought it? They're taking over the universe. One poem at a time. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> well, that number goes back a long ways. Well, it didn't go back far enough. Mm. I could still see it. <laughs> well, we're getting quite deep into Muppet history now. I didn't expect to do this much, but it's been very interesting researching it and finding out the different nuances and origins of the Muppets. But after the success of the show in the 70s and early 80s, this led to a slew of cinema spin-offs, which went through three distinct stages. I will cover the movies a little bit more later, but there was the early trio of The Muppet Movie in 79, The Great Muppet Caper 81, and The Muppets Take Manhattan in 84, followed by mid-period releases such as the seasonal favourite Muppet Christmas Carol in 92, and the much derided Muppets in Space in 99, about which Kermit himself commented in 2012, with all due respect to the Muppets from Space, mm, you don't want that to be the last movie ever, do you? More about all of the movies, though, much later. Let's talk about a more serious side of the Muppets, 
In 2002, rights of the Muppets transferred to the German company EMTV and Merchandising AG, which promptly collapsed, leading the Henson family to reacquire the rights in 2003, with Disney's full acquisition of the Muppets in 2004 for a mere $75 million. Things began to pick up, albeit slowly, and plans were laid to reboot the movies. A handful of forgotten TV specials peppered the 2000s, but Disney's stewardship eventually resulted in box office hit The Muppets in 2011, and its less popular follow-up Muppets Most Wanted in 2014. Meanwhile, The Muppets maintained a fitful presence on TV with two short-lived series, The Jim Henson Hour on NBC in 1989 and The Muppets Tonight ABC 1996. In the UK though, the latter was pulled from the BBC One's Friday night schedule, leaving nine episodes of a total of 22 still as yet unseen there. Guests of that show were possibly a bit of a step down from the original series, but still included big names such as Billy Crystal, Pierce Brosnan, Cindy Crawford. I should tell you my Cindy Crawford story one day. Hmm, save that for another episode, I think. Prince was on there, Tony Bennett, and of course, Coolio. Who else? The last peak time Muppet show was ABC's Fly on the Wall office-style sitcom The Muppets in 2015 and 2016, which was poorly received being seen as mean-spirited and untrue to the upbeat vibe of previous incarnations. None of the original main voice actors even remained then. Even Steve Whitmire, who played Kermit after Jim Henson's death, was booted in 2017 after a 27-year run in the role for, as Disney put it, unacceptable business conduct. Whitmore said, They felt I had been disrespectful in being outspoken on character issues. Steve would use, I am now Kermit, and if you want the Muppets, you better make me happy because the Muppets are Kermit. And that's really not okay, Muppet boss Brian Henson told The Hollywood Reporter. Whitmire himself said, I didn't yell or call anyone names or refuse to do my job. I just gave lots of definitive notes via emails to this small group about character integrity and always tried to offer alternate solutions. Disney and the Muppets studio have a differing interpretation of the terms of Whitmire's departure, stating that the actor exhibited unacceptable business conduct. A source close to the studio said that Whitmire's communication style was overly hostile and unproductive, and his way of negotiation delayed productions. His persistent unprofessional behaviour over a number of years ultimately led to the decision, the source said. The role of Kermit the Frog is an iconic one that is beloved by fans, and we take our responsibility to protect the integrity of the character very seriously, a spokesperson for the Muppet Studio said in a statement. We raised concerns about Steve's repeated unacceptable business conduct over a period of many years, and he consistently failed to address the feedback. The decision to part ways was a difficult one, which was made in consultation with the Henson family and has their full support. Whatever the machinations behind the scenes, the changing voice of Kermit, it's now Matt Vogel under the Greenfield actually, gives the later versions of Muppets a vaguely ersatz, less genuine feel when compared to the original TV series and the first few movies. Although the new cast members do a decent job of replicating the voices of the iconic characters. While still with us, actor-director Frank Oz hasn't voiced Fozzie, Animal or Miss Piggy since 1999's duo of Muppets in Space and the adventures of Elmo in Grouchland. Not that he's no longer haunted by his Muppet past, when directing 2001's heist thriller The Score, Oz was subjected to star Marlon Brando's Muppet-related abuse. It was reported that Brando took to calling former Muppet show puppeteer Oz Miss Piggy, and apparently said, I bet you wish I was a puppet so you could stick your hand up my ass and make me do what you want. Well, we all know what you've done up people's asses, Marlon Brando. Just pass the butter. The thing about the Muppets, though, is their ability to reinvent themselves for new generations of viewers and us older fans. As long as their essential sweet nature and, yes, humanity is retained. Now, with that in mind, there's the more recent The Muppets Now. 
Disney Plus's short form, unscripted variety show featuring celebrity interviews that harks back to the original ATV series. Scooter scrambles to upload the Muppet streaming series while the rest of the gang throw complications, distractions and obstacles at him. I do think Kermit does sound a bit weird in this outing though, and if Muppets Now seeks to reclaim the glory of the Muppet show in future seasons, they will have to find a place for Kermit. His strange sensitivity, his sinuous limbs, his terror of Miss Piggy's sexuality, and his robust, undying optimism all rolled into one. Also in development in 29 for Disney Plus was Muppets Live Another Day. However, Muppets Live Another Day was to become an unfinished Muppets series. It was first announced in 2019 and was to be developed by Josh Gad and writers Adam Horowitz and Eddie Kitsis. The show's premise was to follow the events of the Muppets Take Manhattan and to have Kermit reunite with the Muppets after the disappearance of Rolf the Dog. In September 29, it was said that the show would not be completed due to writers' creative differences and a change in executives at the Muppet Studios. Now for fans like me, still keen to get their fix, a veritable Muppets smorgasbord could still be in the offing. Yes, a veritable Muppet smorgasbord. Another great word. We should use that word more often. Thank you to the Swedish chef too. Okay, firstly, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. An all-time classic, one of my favourites to watch over Christmas. I actually only stumbled on it about 10 years ago, but I really do enjoy watching that at Christmas, a gentle tale of Emmett Otter and his jug band. But on October the 21st, 2019, it was announced that Flight of the Concords' Brett McKenzie is writing the script and songs for a film adaptation of the TV special, and it will be produced by the Jim Henson Company, Pacific Electric Picture Company, and Snoot Entertainment. That's a good name. McKenzie will write both the script and the new music for the family Christmas movie. The original TV special was based on Russell Hoban's children's book of the same name, which features a family of financially strapped singing otters who sees an opportunity to win a much-needed monetary prize in a Christmas talent competition. Jim Henson directed the original special, which was hosted by Kermit the Frog and featured the voice talents of the one and only Frank Oz. This isn't Mackenzie's first foray into the Henson universe though. He served as music supervisor for both 2011's The Muppets as well as 2014's Muppets Most Wanted. The former won an Oscar for the best original song, Man or Muppet, great song. There's no further news on the Emmett Otter special yet, but hopefully it will do the original justice. Actually, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas also has a live-action stage musical adaptation. The show first opened on December the 7th, 2008 at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut and ran until January the 4th, 2009. The show was developed by Goodspeed Musicals and the Jim Henson Company again. The show returned to Goodspeed for the 2009 and 2010 season, running from December the 5th to January the 3rd. The production features a mix of live actors and stage puppets built and refurbished by the Jim Henson Company. Paul Williams returned to write four new songs just for the stage adaptation and finished Born in a Trunk, which he originally started for the television special. In addition to the extra songs, other changes were made in adapting the musical from the television special. Some are minor, some are merging Yancey Woodchuck with the fruit stand owner, while the most significant update is that of a framing device added by the way of two new characters, Russ and Jane, a contemporary father and daughter who read the storybook together one Christmas Eve. In a move similar to The Wizard of Oz and Labyrinth, Jane ultimately finds herself within the context of the story itself. Another new character is Madame Squirrel, something of a leader for the acrobatic squirrel characters that appeared in the special. They themselves have been upgraded to more scenes for the stage version as well. 
On the opening night of the show, attendees included Jane Henson and Jerry Nelson, Nelson having been the original puppeteer for the title character, and the Goodspeed Opera House went on to honour Paul Williams with the Goodspeed Award for Outstanding Contribution to Musical Theatre. For the second run of the show, the show's title was changed and shortened, from Emmett Otter's Jugband Christmas to Jim Henson's Emmett Otter. The script was slightly reworked for this run. Instead of Jane becoming a part of the story, she remained a separate character. Trust, a new song written for the stage version, was rewritten to be sung by Emmett instead of Jane. Although Jane sings a reprise of the song during a brief fantasy sequence when she tries to leave her house only to encounter the squirrels. To replace a moment in the original script where Jane gives up her spot in the talent contest to allow Alice to sing, a new character, John Deere, was created. He only manages to get on the stage before becoming frightened by the spotlight and running away. A majority of the original cast members and puppeteers reunited for a one-night-only concert at 54 Below in New York City on December the 15th, 2015. Lots of dates in this episode. The script was further modified to completely remove Jane and Russell's subplot, though Kate Weatherhead, Jane, participated in the performance as the narrator. The musical have its official New York premiere, once again under the title Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, at the New Victory Theatre from December the 6th, this year, 2021, through January the 2nd, 2022. Gatelli will return to direct and choreograph the production with puppets, of course, by the Jim Henson Company. I would dearly love to get tickets for that, so any of you New York people, feel free to invite me to Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas opening night, and I will happily attend. Okay, let's move on. More Muppet Smorgasbord, hurdy birdy. Muppet Man. On April the 21st, 2021, Deadline reported that a Jim Henson biopic called Muppet Man was in development, with the Disney and Henson companies co-producing. Michael Mitnick, of The Current War and The Giver, is writing the script, and Lisa Henson is producing. The movie will focus on Henson's journey to convince broadcasters that the Muppets were a viable idea for television. Much of what we've already talked about. What's next? And this is very soon. Muppets Haunted Mansion. This is an upcoming Muppet special planned for release on Disney Plus in the autumn, sorry fall, of this year. In fact, it will premiere on Disney Plus on October the 8th. Hopefully I've finished talking about the Muppets by then. The special will take place on Halloween night, when Gonzo is challenged to spend the night in the Haunted Mansion. According to Disney's announcement, the special will feature a star-studded Muppets cast, celebrity cameos, all new music, and spooky fun for families to enjoy together. Spooky, always a good word. The project was announced in May 2021 as part of Disney's Halfway to Halloween event with a special video featuring Gonzo and Pepe the King Prawn. What else is there on this veritable smorgasbord? Bork, bork, bork? Fraggle Rock? Oh, fantastic. One of my 80s favourites. I should talk more about Fraggle Rock one day. Following on from 2020's Apple TV Plus show Fraggle Rock Rock On, these were just shorts, in which Gobo, Red, Booba, Moki, Wembley and Uncle Travelling Matt join together again for new stories and classic Fraggle songs that show how everyone is connected through friendship. Fraggle Rock's Rock On cast of puppets return to Dance Your COVID-19 Cares Away. All the main characters were actually self-isolating in their own caves, connected via video chat powered by a network of Doozer Tubes, built by the ever-industrious Doozers. It was great to see the Fraggles back in action after so many years, but I do feel the last few episodes of the series are too centred around the celebrity guest stars. The Fraggles were joined by Neil Patrick Harris, Tiffany Haddish, Ziggy Marley, Alanis Morissette, and more special guests for what was billed as an epic jam session. This premiered on May the 26th, 2020, still available. But Fraggle Rock itself is returning. 
with full-length episodes in a rebooted version of the Jim Henson series that ran from 1983 to 1987. The new series will premiere on Apple TV Plus service, which is co-producing the show with the Jim Henson Company and New Regency Productions. I do like that all of these companies still involve the Jim Henson Company. Pre-production of the series began in fall, sorry, autumn, 2020, under the working title Raffinus. Raffinus? What's that mean? It's actually the Latin word for radish. If you watched and loved Fraggle Rock as I did, you'll understand the radish terminology. Filming commenced on January the 25th of 2021 at the Calgary Film Centre in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and wrapped up just recently in June of this year. So there's plenty to look forward to in the Muppet future, and hopefully lots more. Now, for the rest of this episode, I want to focus on the characters from the original Muppet series. And I think this is an appropriate moment for a top 10 of my personal favourite characters in the Muppet show. Now there may be a few surprises here, as not all of my favourites are the main characters you would expect. Okay, I think we're now what, 4 days, 3 hours and 27 minutes into this podcast, but we're not even started yet. Let's keep going. Waste of time, nothing will save this show. (laughs) So here we go, top 10 Muppet characters, for me anyway. Actually, it's a top 11. I got a bit carried away when going through this subject, and other than the top 3 or 4, I did add others and then take them away, only to put them back in again, so I thought 11, why not? Top 11, make it different for a change. Okay, in at number 11. Sweetums. This might surprise a few people. Sweetums has very little discernible talent, but that's only because he is tragically underutilised. Plus, it's scientifically proven that if your heart doesn't break watching him run after that car in the Muppets movie, you were not held enough as a baby. Sweetums is meant to be with the Muppets. If only the Muppets realised how lucky they are to have him. I also love his cameo in Muppet Vision 3D, which is just across the street from Pizza Rizzo in Disney's MGM, I mean Hollywood Studios. Sweetums, who is a live, full-bodied Muppet in Muppet Vision 3D, comes out into the audience to search for Bean Bunny, having already done so on screen. With help from the audience, he finds Bean on the other side balcony, across from Statler and Waldorf. He explains why he ran away, and agrees to stay if he can help in the finale. Kermit, Fozzie and Gonzo decide to let Bean Bunny shoot off the fireworks. Kermit then introduces the finale with a toy soldier marching band playing patriotic music. During their performance, Waldo, the spirit of 3D, bounces on the heads and one of the tuba players gets his head stuck inside. To make matters worse, since he cannot see, he runs into people and causes them to fall down. Sam then tells Bean Bunny to shoot off the fireworks. To show off, Waldo shapeshifts into a rocket and zooms around Miss Piggy, who is dressed like a Statue of Liberty, and accidentally tears her skirt off. Waldo then plummets into the Penguin's orchestra, causing smoke to rise. Why am I telling you all about this, about Muppet Vision 3D? Well, if you haven't seen it, that's just the mayhem that it is. Because then, Sweetums reappears and tells the Swedish chef to stop the projector. He then puts out the fire with water, which infuriates the penguins, and they decide to retaliate with a cannon. After Sweetums tells the audience to duck, the penguins fire their cannon and hit the projector. And that last few moments actually sums up the Muppet's mayhem right there. You can't beat a bit of Sweetums, though. In fact, let's have a little bit right now. A musical duet featuring Gonzo the Great and my own little nephew, Robin. Uncle Kermit, Uh, Gonzo says he can't sing with a long arm. Oh, shall we cancel? No, no, I'm doing it with Sweetums. Sweetums? Just introduce us, okay? (laughs) Sweetums is nine feet tall. Oh, well, whatever. Here they are, the low and the mighty Robin and Sweetums. (laughs) 
We're two lost souls on the highway of life. We ain't even got a sister or brother. But ain't it just great? Ain't it just grand? We've got each other. Two lost ships on a stormy sea. One with no sail and one with no rider. But ain't it just great? Ain't it just grand? We've got each other. I do love that song, even with little Robin, who for me was a little bit of a shit, but there you go. Anyway, let's move on. Number 10, and this again is Muppet Vision related, if only for his impression of Mickey Mouse in the pre-show queue. It's Rizzo the Rat. If you've seen the show, you'll know what that meant. Rizzo is a streetwise and sarcastic rat with a New Jersey accent. He's a self-proclaimed acrophobe. Look it up if you don't know. His humour can be risque, as in the TV series The Muppets. He was given the line, Is ABC going to be okay with Mother Teresa on a stick? To avoid potential difficulty with real-life censors, alternative lines were actually filmed. Rizzo's family has been mentioned in Muppet Media. He has 1,274 brothers and sisters, as told to Gonzo in The Muppet Christmas Carol. In 2016, Disney announced Rizzo came from a family that traditionally cooked pizzas. Hmm, convenient marketing there, I think. This addition to his story was in light of a new pizzeria, which I mentioned earlier, at MGM, I mean Disney Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Florida, dedicated to Rizzo, called Pizza Rizzo. I can recommend going there, actually, if you were ever in Disney's MGM, I mean Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Florida. I actually went there last month. A great little pit stop, and some really interesting Muppet memorabilia in there, too. It's a, it's a well-decorated place. The pizzas are average, but it's good for a little snackette as you're wandering around the parks. It helps keep you upbeat while you're there. The Rizzo character is particularly associated with Gonzo the Great, with the two sharing a double act since 1992. Steve Whitmire actually based the character on the Dustin Hoffman character in Midnight Cowboy, Ratzo Rizzo. Hmm, sounds very familiar. Okay, let's get through this top 10 very quickly, shall we? We know it's going to take hours. Let's have a little bit of Rizzo the Rat. Chamber is on this side of the house. Oh. Jump! There's only two things in this life I hate heights and jumping from them. <sighs> Too late now. Come on, I'll catch you. Uh, go! 
God save my little broken body. Missed. Ah. Oh, wait a second. I forgot my jelly beans. Um. What? You can fit through those bars? Yeah. You are such an idiot. What? What? Hey, what? What? Which leads me nicely into number nine. Who could it be next? Here is a bit of a clue. Yes, at number 9, it's Crazy Harry. As a child, I loved Crazy Harry. He's the pyrotechnic expert on the Muppet Show, an unkempt figure with wild eyes and a mad cackle. <laughs> he delights in blowing things up, his trademark is appearing at the slightest mention of an explosive-related word and reiterating it in the form of a question. For example, did somebody say bang before setting off an explosion? Very simple, very funny. In addition to the explosions, he played the triangle bell in the Muppet Orchestra during the first season opening and in the closing, and he also played in the second season closing. His finest hour though may well have been in episode 306, accompanying Gene Stapleton on the Exploder Phone, with a particularly frantic rendition of I'm Just Wild About Harry. He originally appeared in the Muppets Valentine show as Crazy Donald, a reference to the Muppet builder Don Sarling, who enjoyed creating the Muppets special effects explosions. His name was changed to Crazy Harry in his second appearance, The Muppet Show Sex and Violence. So yes, he's one of the early characters. His film appearances have included, amongst others, The Muppet Movie as the special effects expert, of course, The Great Muppet Caper as a resident of the Happiness Hotel, The Muppets Take Manhattan attending the wedding, Muppets from Space at the beach, of course, the Muppets Wizard of Oz as one of the flying monkeys and the Muppets, where at one point he uses explosives to carve his own head into Mount Rushmore. And he's also in Muppets Most Wanted, where he sets up explosions during Christopher Waltz's number, he appeared in the Stars and Stripes Forever online video and a Muppets Christmas Letters to Santa. Crazy Harry, forever ingrained in my mind for sure, just for the wild-eyed craziness. Okay, let's keep going with this top 10. What's going to be next? Number 8, for me. The Singing Fruit. That's a bit of a generalisation, but 
any fruit that sings has to be funny. The singing fruit debuted in the Muppet Show episode 208. This collection of anthropomorphic fruits, easy for you to say, and vegetables included a tomato, or tomato for those of you in the colonies, potatoes, scallions, a cabbage, a cauliflower, an asparagus, a cantaloupe, good word, cantaloupe, a few bunches of grapes, and a pack of beans, and they served as a chorus under the direction of Marvin Suggs. Variations of these food items have since appeared in The Great Muppet Caper, The Muppets A Celebration of 30 Years, The Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppet Treasure Island, Muppet Top Shop, ooh that sounded good, just rolled off the tongue, Muppet Top Shop, that's a very upbeat Muppet Top Shop. <laughs> The Muppets and many other productions, getting sidetracked with words already. Now many different singing fruits and vegetables have appeared on Sesame Street as well, notably featured in the song Healthy Food and the brief introduction to Healthy Habits for Life, a segment that aired before every episode of season 36. In contract to the classic singing food, Sesame Street's singing food had black pupils on white eyes, with the exception of the potato of course. Anyway, enough of the fruity detail, let's hear a clip of the singing fruit. without my hollandaise. And actually, in keeping with the song, there were no bananas harmed in the making of that clip. In fact, there were no bananas. Anyway, I digress. What could be next? I know, number seven, some of my favourite collective characters, I guess. I don't know what the correct term is for a, a collection of these type of Muppets. Let's just say, I call them the Penguins. <laughs> The penguins are mostly nameless and undifferentiated from one another. Generally playful and wacky in nature, they have appeared in many Muppet productions. Sometimes in places where penguins are not commonly seen. But then again, we've just had singing fruit and vegetables. They are best known for tossing themselves into the air. The Muppet penguins usually communicate with sounds that penguins would make, but they have spoken a few times. In The Muppets Wizard of Oz, 
The Muppet Penguins are referred to by Scooter as unisex, gender androgynous or applicable to male and female, reflecting the fact that they do function as a collective, identical and indistinguishable. Brian Henson said, What my father figured out was, if you can't get out of a scene, you just either blow something up, or you eat something, or you just throw penguins in the air. Very simple. Brian Henson built the very first Muppet Penguin, which was used by Frank Oz for the lullaby of Broadway on The Muppet Show episode 304. He was given the name Winky Pinkerton. Oh, that's another upbeat name, Winky Pinkerton. And that was in episode 308. He was the only penguin in the cast until four penguins popped up in episode 320's Hawaiian War Chant. The complete group of penguins appeared for the first time in episode 321. Ooh, isn't that a game show? No, that's for another episode. In this episode, one of them is the first Muppet affected by... <gasps> Cluckitis, the disease that struck the Muppet Theatre. In this episode, it caused the whole cast, except for Gonzo, to sneeze and turn into chickens. Of course it did. In episode 424, a supposed penguin affirms that he's a flamingo disguised with a tuxedo. Groups of penguins include the pilgrim penguins and the endangered species Corusline. Penguins are featured as musicians in the orchestra pit in a few Muppet productions. I mentioned Muppet Vision 3D earlier. Nicky Napoleon and his emperor penguins appeared in both puppet and animatronic form. The penguins also provided the background music for Little Muppet Monsters. There was also Charlotte the Penguin, who appeared in the Animal Show episode, Penguin and Kiwi. In the episode Indian Elephant and Human, it is shown that a penguin serves as a camera operator for the show. Nelly Penguin also made an appearance on an episode of Moppetop Shop. I do love that name, Moppetop Shop. I'm going to say it all episode long because I love Moppetop Shop. Back to the Muppets though. Miss Piggy kept a baby penguin, who she named Gloria Estefan, or Estefan, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And that was after she'd smuggled her back from a vacation in, in Argentina. The interesting fact is, these are all supposed to be unisex and androgynous, and a collective. Yet in subsequent episodes, they are referred to as he and she. In 2018, the Muppet Babies introduced Summer Penguin as a main character in the Muppet Babies group. I did like Muppet Babies actually, that was a good watch back in the day. Although I don't recall watching it in 2018, I think it was more in the 80s when I saw it. Honest. Okay, let's have a clip of the penguins and we'll move on. Again, one of my favourite clips coming up now. A penguin skating party in Dickensian London. Fantastic. What more could a man ask for? Okay, let's move on to number six. Now I've got a feeling as we get into the top six, I might be spending more time on each one. So buckle in, buckaroo, because we've still got a long way to go yet. I'm enjoying this, even if you're not. Well, you've made it this far, so you must be enjoying it. Okay, let's go to number six. Who could it possibly be? Well, you all know I love a bad joke. And a dad joke. The Muppet Show's resident comedian, 
He's an orange-brown, fuzzy Muppet bear who tells bad jokes, usually punctuated with his catchphrase laugh, Waka Waka! It's Fozzy Bear in at number 6. Well we know, Fozzy's best friend is Kermit the Frog, although they occasionally have differences of opinion. During the first season of The Muppet Show, Fozzie's monologues usually consisted of Fozzie telling simple setup punchline jokes, while being heckled by his mother's old friends, Statler and Waldorf. After the first season, most of his monologues relied on gimmicks, such as telling jokes on roller skates. A common shtick in many episodes is that Fozzie would attempt to imitate the guest star's most famous act to attempt to emulate their success, only to comically fail completely at the attempt. For instance, Edgar Bergen inspired him to try ventriloquism, while stage magician Doug Henning inadvertently convinced Fozzie to try his hand at being a magician. In Jim Henson, The Works, Christopher Finch wrote, One of the biggest problems with the first season was with Fozzie Bear. Fozzie was crucial to The Muppet Show because he was conceived as Frank Oz's main character. And the success of the show would depend, to a significant degree, on Frank having the opportunity to display the full range of his virtuoso performance and comedic skills. It was very logical to have a comedian as a primary character on The Muppet Show, particularly once The Muppet Theatre had been established as its basic setting. And given the spirit of The Muppets, it was almost inevitable that he would be a bad comedian. The problem with Fozzie was that his bad jokes and failure to win over an audience provoked more embarrassment than sympathy. For instance, in episode 122, Fozzie gets so fed up with the heckling that he demands that everyone but true Fozzie fans leaves the auditorium. As a result, the seats are left completely empty. Even Fozzie's own cousin leaves. Fozzie departs the stage, almost in tears. Almost a tragic character. Jerry Jewell and Frank Oz gradually transformed Fozzie by building up the positive aspects of his personality. They allowed his perpetual optimism to offset his on-stage failures until he became a more rounded character. And you do see that development of his character. Fozzie's virtues ultimately made his ineptness acceptable and even endearing. So successful was this metamorphosis that he became one of the most popular of all the Muppets. He made my top six. As Brian Henson notes in the generic Muppet Show introduction, Fozzie is always telling terrible jokes, but he's just trying so hard you've got to love him. As an infant, like many of the Muppets, Fozzie was under the care of Nanny, as seen in Muppet Babies of course. Fozzie's mother, however, kept some early home videos of Fozzie and the other Muppets, as shown in A Muppet Family Christmas. As a kid, Fozzie was raised by his mom and dad, along with his baby brother, Freddy. Fozzie grew up right next door to his best friend Kermit, and often spent time with his grandpa. Even as a baby, Fozzie always had an interest in becoming a comedian. Fozzie remarked at the 2009 D23 Expo that he understudied at the Country Bear Jamboree, one of my favourite attractions at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. And yes, I went there twice on my recent visit to the Jamboree. Yes, twice. I did it twice. It's that good. Anyway, back to Fozzie. Fozzie became a stand-up comic at the El Slezo Cafe, where Kermit invited him to come to Hollywood to become famous. Fozzie took his uncle's car, which was left to him while his uncle hibernated, and the pair set out for California. However, if Fozzie had never met Kermit, he would have ended up becoming a skilled pickpocket, so good that he could pick the pocket of someone without pants. However, according to the great Muppet caper, Fozzie and Kermit are identical twin brothers, and share the same father. Now this is getting complicated. Fozzie's mother is Emily Bear, Fozzie has a cousin, who looks just like him, who appeared on The Muppet Show, but apparently had no more respect for his relatives' talent than anyone else. Fozzie also mentioned an uncle in The Muppet Movie. Although Fozzie's main job on The Muppet Show is to be the stand-up comedian, he takes an occasional dramatic role and assists backstage. He appears in sketches with guest stars Avery Schreiber and Nancy Walker, 
and he also appears in the recurring sketch, Bear on Patrol. In episode 201, Kermit let Fozzie help plan the show. His abilities in doing so earned him the title of Honorary Hip Dude from the Electric Mayhem Band. Sadly, his planning also later lost him that title. Then, when Kermit becomes sick in episode 206, Fozzie is put in charge of hosting the show, which proves quite taxing for the bear. Fozzie had also made an attempt to write for the show in episode 314, when he decided that the show needed a script. Unfortunately, Fozzie is either a bad speller or a bad typist, or both, as Kermit found it difficult to read the introductions that Fozzie wrote for him. Fozzie later admitted that he was a bad speller when he wrote the word Muffets as part of the title card for the Muppets Go to the Movies. Anyway, let's have a little bit of Fozzie stand-up, shall we? There's got to be plenty out there. Uh, here we are, moving right along now, the uh, comedy star of our show, the man who comes to us direct from a very long engagement, but a very short marriage. The man who thinks that Elton John is a singing bathroom. I'd like now to bring out one of the top comics of the business. Yeah, since he's not here, bring out the regular guy. <laughs> okay, here he is now, our very own barrel of boss, Mr. Fozzie Bear. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Time for fun with Fozzie Bear. Here's some jokes from everywhere. Hey, uh, hey, hey, it's that silly bear. It's time for the audience to go elsewhere. <laughs> uh, if you don't mind, I'll do the jokes. We don't mind, huh? but when are you going to do them? <laughs> uh, pay no attention to them, folks. They don't bother me. I can handle hecklers in my sleep. Oh, well, don't tell that to the audience. They're asleep, too. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, listen. I'm going to tell you my best joke, and if you don't laugh, then I'll never come back out on this stage again, okay? It's a deal. <laughs> oh. Ah, ah, uh, uh. These two cannibals were talking. One cannibal says to the other cannibal, who was that lady I saw you out with last night? The other cannibal says, that was no lady, that was my lunch. <laughs> I got you, I got you, and I lied. That was my worst joke. Oh, I love me when I'm good. Pacing, timing, money. Why did we laugh at that terrible joke? Well, either we're getting soft or we're in the first stages of senility. You can't beat a bit of fuzzy. I also like Statler and Waldorf, as you might have guessed, but they're not in the top five yet. So we're into the top five. Are they going to be number five? No, they're not. Number five is not so much a character, but more of a recurring sketch from The Muppet Show, but I had to put this in my top ten as a group of characters. I was never a fan of Miss Piggy. Sometimes she was very good, sometimes average. I did like her and her daughters in Muppet Christmas Carol, but this is my favourite porcine-related sketch, shall we say. I'll let them introduce themselves. And now, Pigs in Space! Starring the salubrious Captain Link Hogthrob, the provocative first mate, Miss Piggy, and the mythical Dr. Strangebook. When last we left the spaceship Swine Trek, it was drifting aimlessly in space due to the loss of power in the steering mechanism. 
Are you sure we've lost power on our stilling mechanism, Link? Oh, I'm afraid so, Doctor. Try that one. What, this one here? Mm -hmm. I already did. I didn't see you. You don't have to see me. I'm the captain. Did you see him, Doctor? Uh, no. There. But if Link says he tried that one, I for one believe him. Thank you. Men, you all stick together. I'm going to try that control. Now you stay on your own side. These are the captain's controls. Those are your controls. They're the first mate controls. You work your own. But my controls are just for the hot plate, the air conditioning, and the stereo. <laughs> they have nothing to do with steering. That's right. <laughs> Doctor, I'm going to take a break. Would you see that first mate Piggy works her own controls and not mine? All right, Link. I know that it's this one. Uh, no, but the captain said that... I don't not... care what he said. I'm going to try it. I heard that. Stop her. Uh, it's too late. This works the steering. Oh, the door. Tune in two weeks from tonight and miss next week's Pigs in Space. Pigs in Space. <laughs> I had to do it. The recurring sketch from The Muppet Show, featuring the exploits of Captain Link Hogthrob, the true embodiment of a male chauvinist pig, as you did here there. First Mate Piggy and Dr. Julius Strangepork, leading a crew of pigs aboard the Swine Trek. The sketch, in concept, is essentially a parody of Star Trek, Lost in Space, and other space operas of the 1960s and 70s. Pigs in Space, Pigs in Space! Sorry, I can't. Sorry, I will not tire of doing that. First a pig. <laughs> I've lost it on the Pigs in Space. But Pigs in Space first appeared on The Muppet Show during the second season. The recurring sketch became a popular part of the series, appearing in 32 episodes over four seasons. During the sketch's first year, I won't say it, Pigs in Space, I behaved myself, began with an introduction featuring the crew's commanding roster, each introduction narrated by Jerry Nelson as the announcer, as you heard, and it used several different humorous adjectives to describe the characters by name. This was dropped starting with the third season for some reason. The concept of a pig-dominated science fiction story first appeared in The Muppet Show, Sex and Violence, remember that, in Return to Beneath the Planet of the Pigs, parodying Planet of the Apes, with a human character finding himself under the scrutiny of an all-pig populated world. I do like the idea of that actually, maybe they should make Planet of the Pigs in the future. But that predates the proper introduction of Pigs in Space sketch format by two years. Frank Oz considers it something of a prototype for what would become a recurring segment. The popularity of, I won't do it, Pi no, no, don't do it, Pigs in Space, won the sketch a spot on the second Muppet Show cast album released in 1978. The script for the skit used in episode 205 was re-recorded in the studio by the performers. That same year, the events of the sketch from episode 209 were translated to the pages of the Muppet Show book as illustrated by Tudor Barnes. The height of pop culture awareness for the crew of the Swine Trek occurred in 1981. As part of NASA's morning wake-up call tradition, by which the crew of the Space Shuttle are awakened with stirring music, familiar song lyrics, or comedy routines in order to boost morale and encourage camaraderie between the astronauts and their mission control colleagues, the crew of the Space Shuttle Columbia were greeted by PIGS IN SPACE! Sorry, that was an appropriate one. And that happened on two consecutive mornings. It was specially recorded by the Muppet performers for the occasion. 
two separate comedy routines were heard, one on the morning of November the 13th and another on November the 14th, where it followed a rendition of Columbia, Gem of the Ocean, by a flight director at Band. After the Muppet Show, Pigs in Space, was adapted into a video game for Atari and also featured as animated segments on Little Muppet Monsters. Revived as Pigs in Space, Deep Dish 9 on Muppets Tonight, it also appeared in comic book format in the Muppet Show comic book by Roger Langridge and as an online web series launched in 2016. Check that out. In fact, let's see if I can find some, shall we, before we move on. First mate, this pig, and the inexplicable Doctor Strange. As we left our heroes last time, the spaceship swine trek was on the verge of a hideous catastrophe. Doctor Strange, Bork, who can save us from this hideous catastrophe? Captain, according to my records, the only person who's had the necessary training to save us is First Mate Piggy. <gasps> oh! I am ready to do whatever is necessary to save the swine trek and her crew. I am at the service of all Porkton. What is my assignment? Miss Piggy, mm. you and you alone can operate the independent heating slash unifying element across the horizontal equalizing plane and save the entire crew of the swine trek. Oh. Oh, I am ready, my captain. Excellent. Bring in the equipment for Miss Piggy. Well, surely you recognize the independent heating slash unifying element and the horizontal equalizing planes? You want me to do the laundry? Well, of course. Nobody on the crew has had clean laundry for a week. That is correct. We're all living like pigs. An astute observation, Doctor. Hey, what say? You want to play a little touch football, toss the old pigskin around, huh? Mind you, Captain. Oh, uh, one more thing, Miss Piggy. A little less starch in the pajamas, okay? Oh, yeah? We'll starch this, sausage snout! Hi! <laughs> again next time for another iron-fisted episode of Pig in Fantastic. I've always been a fan of science fiction B-movies, and for me, P I mean, Pigs in Space will always be up there with the greatest. I do love those sketches. As a child, I adored the swine trick. Anyway, let's move on. Okay, for number four, I actually tried to get these guests on the show, believe it or not. When I was in the USA, I visited them up at workshop. True story. More about that in the next episode, I believe. However, two of the characters promised they would call in. Unfortunately, all I got was this message. See if you can recognize number four. Huh. Well, we should be looking at the World Wide Web by now. Well, does the World Wide Web look like two old coots with nose hair? Well, I hope not. Then all I'm seeing is our reflection in the monitor. Did you try clicking on the mouse? We have mice? Well, no, the computer mouse. Well, no wonder this is such a cheesy computer. Oh, would <laughs> you please just try to pay attention? Well, if you'd say something hey, worth guys, hearing... Hey, guys, what are you doing? What, 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 what does it look like? Yeah, we're surfing the World Wide Web. Well, it might help if you turn the computer on. Wh huh? Turn the computer on? Well, that's what he said. Well, 
Anything's worth a try. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you come here often? Hey, sweetie, what's your sign? Yeah, dude, would you like to see my etchings? Hmm. You ever get a mustache kiss? <laughs> yes, at number four, Statler and Waldorf. Statler and Waldorf, a pair of elderly Muppet characters, known for their cantankerous opinions and shared penchant for heckling, as you've heard throughout this show. They share the stage-left balcony box in the Muppet Theatre, and the two delight in heckling every aspect of the Muppet show. Waldorf is the one with the rounder face, white hair and moustache, Statler the other one. In almost all productions, Statler appears on the audience's right, and Waldorf on the left. They first appeared as a pair in the 1975 pilot, The Muppet Show Sex and Violence. We keep harking back to that, but that's how many of the key characters were in that show. Fans and pop culture have sometimes referred them to simply as the two old guys in the balcony. On The Muppet Show, they usually have the last word with a final comment at the end, except for four episodes, episodes 123, 217, 314 and 515. You can check that, but I did check it myself and watched every episode. Yes, I did. For researching this podcast, I did watch every episode. They are, however, especially unforgiving to Fozzie Bear. It is, however, revealed in A Muppet Family Christmas that the two critics are friends with Fozzie's mother, Ma Bear. On the first season of Muppets Tonight, Statler and Waldorf are seen watching the show from the living room of what appears to be a retirement home. In the second season, they watch the show on a portable television from various locations, including a golf course and a ski lift. In The Muppet Christmas Carol, they play the ghosts of Scrooge's business partners, Jacob and Robert Marley. Marley or Marley? Ooh! Great song. In Muppet Treasure Island, Statler and Waldorf are the figurehead on the Hispaniola. In The Muppets Wizard of Oz, they appear as the Collider Critics, strange beasts who shout insults at anyone attempting to cross a treacherous bridge. From 2005 to 2006, Statler and Waldorf starred in a bi-weekly online series, From the Balcony, and that was on the website movies.com. In the series of short videos, the crotchety pair dished secrets and abuse on the latest movie releases. The duo finally took on a feature role in The Muppets, sharing the fine print on the Muppet contract with the villain Tex Richman. Of course, Statler and Waldorf didn't realise that Tex plans to raise Muppet Studios and drill for oil, which would mean the end of their balcony and their heckling. In Muppets Most Wanted, they travelled with the Muppets watching the touring show, and they say Miss Piggy's performance of the Macarena has made the show even worse, managing the impossible. Let's have a little bit of trivia about them. Statler and Waldorf were named after the two New York City hotels, the Statler Hotel, which was renamed the Hotel Pennsylvania in 1992, and the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Actually, Waldorf's wife, Astoria, completes the set. Little known fact. Early in the Muppets, a celebration of 30 years, Statler claims Waldorf has had a pacemaker for over 30 years. Another small fact there, it's all in the detail. In Le Muppet Show, oh, mon français, the two are often designated as les deux gâteaux. I thought that meant cake, but it means the two seniles. Oh dear, the French always politically incorrect. Anyway, before we move on, I didn't spend much time on Statler and Waldorf. I think we've had enough of those two guys. Well, we can never have enough of them. They almost made my number one, to be perfectly honest. The top four are all number ones. The top ten, the top eleven are all number ones. The Muppet Show is a number one. Anyway, get on with it. Let's have a little last clip from Statler and Waldorf, and then I'm going to go straight into the clip of the next featured star of The Muppet Show, because that's in at number three. When you get there, you'll know what it is. But I have three words for you. Bork. 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 Mmm, 
Why are we having such trouble getting online? Well, it says here we might be having a problem with our download. Mm, a man can only eat so much fiber. Yeah, oh, and then it says maybe our bits aren't streaming fast enough. At our age, we're lucky they're streaming at all. Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this thing doesn't work. What do you want to do now? Nothing. Sounds good to me. English mm. <laughs> The Swedish Chef Wherever I've been in the world, everybody I've met always associates the Muppets with this man. He's so very internationally funny. Now nearly all Swedish chef sketches begin with him in a kitchen, waving some utensils while singing his signature song in a trademark mock Swedish, a semi-comprehensible gibberish which parodies the characteristic vowel sounds of Swedish. The last line of the song is always bork 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 and is punctuated by the Swedish chef throwing the utensils over his shoulder to crash into the crockery behind him. Although the letter in bork, which is the O with the slash through it, does not exist in Swedish, it is a Danish-Norwegian letter. Yes, I did check this out. Stand by for a Swedish lesson. The Swedish equivalent is actually the the Swedish equivalent is actually the O with an umlaut on the top. That's two dots. But the chef's trademark word that is bork is nearly always spelled B O with a slash R K. Now bear with me for the next five minutes. As I said, bork is often spelt with a slashed O, but it should be the umlaut O. And that letter is actually the 29th and final letter of the Swedish alphabet. Very important to remember this next time you use your Swedish dictionary. How about time for a quick bit of Swedish etymology? So in addition to the basic 26 letters, A to Z, or A to Z, for those of you in the colonies, the end of the Swedish alphabet includes an A with a ring on top, pronounced OA in the long version, and O, as in lock, in the short version. So that's OA in the long version. The long version and the short version depend upon the word it's used in. Yes, I did the research. So OA in the long version, and O, as in lock, in the short version. Then we have the 28th letter of the alphabet, the A with an umlaut on the top, that's the two dots, pronounced R in the long version and E in the short version. Amazing, I'm learning Swedish and so are you. There is also, though, to make things a bit more complicated, a second long version of this letter, the R, and the short version, A. Yes, it's a funny old language for sure. And lastly, we have our chef's favourite letter, the O with the umlaut. And as I said, it's only in Danish and Norwegian that it actually has the slash door or the cross door. But the O with the umlaut is pronounced with two long sounds, Earl and Earl, and two short, O, as in umbrella, and U, as in hurt. Yes, I know those two sound the same. They did to me too. All three are distinctive letters in Swedish and are sorted after Z. They do not mark grammatical change as the umlaut can in German orthography or separate syllables as does the diuresis. So it's not strictly correct to call them umlauts, but this is common. Still with me? It's going to get worse. So Swedish, instead of saying A to Z or A to Z, you say A to Ur. And be aware that of the Scandinavian languages, Swedish and Icelandic, 
are the only ones with the letter UR. It can however be argued that it is historically and etymologically correct to call them umlauts because they were borrowed from the Germans. It's also correct to call them letters with diacritics because that is what they are, despite the two dots not indicating the pronunciation separation indicated by the diaresis mark. The argument is also encountered that they are not variants of the letters A and O with added diacritics because they are separate letters. But this is not logical because there are other languages that have letters with diacritics that treat them as separate letters. Anyway, urr, back to the Swedish chef I think. <laughs> anyway, that's what I learned all about Swedish. Good old YouTube. Anyway, after this introduction of swinging utensils around and singing, the chef continues to speak gibberish while preparing a particular recipe. His commentary is spiced with the occasional English word to clue the viewer into what he's actually attempting to say. You may have heard meatballs in that last sketch. These clues are necessary as he frequently uses unorthodox culinary equipment. There have been firearms, tennis rackets, things like that, and he uses those to prepare his dishes. The sketch typically degenerates into a slapstick finale and he often winds up in pitched battle with his ingredients. From lobster banditos to a Japanese cake, the Swedish chef has also appeared at least briefly in every Muppet film to date. As I said earlier, he was put in charge of running the film projector in Muppet Vision 3D and also in the Muppet movie, typecast again I guess. In A Muppet Family Christmas, he attempts to cook the Christmas turkey, then sets his sights on Big Bird instead. That's a great scene. The Swedish chef's popularity led to his own cereal, The Crunchy Stars, in 1988. Commercials for this product feature the chef up to his usual antics. Let's have a listen. And if you listen carefully, I'm sure he says that he has the munchies. What have you been smoking, Chef? We're in the Muppet Test Kitchen where the Swedish chef is making his delicious star-shaped cereal, New Crunchy Stars. Mmm, makes more munchies. Only the Swedish chef could create the cinnamon toast taste of Crunchy Stars. Mm, yeah, scrumptious. Scrumptious Crunchy Stars, part of this nutritious breakfast. Crunchy Stars, great taste from Post and the Swedish chef. Mmm, scrumptious. Ooh, scrumptious, tasty munchy crunchies indeed. <laughs> also in the 1990s, the Swedish chef appeared regularly on Donna's Day. That was in the second season. This was Donna Eriksson's show, and she taught people how to make interesting and fun crafts, and the chef helped along. What else about the Swedish chef? In episode 316, Danny Kay, portraying the chef's uncle in a sketch, claims that the Swedish chef's first name is Tom. However, since Kay was not a blood relative in reality, this information may be considered apocryphal. Many years later on The Muppets, Christina Applegate misinterprets his name as Megan in Bare Left Then Bare Right, when he was actually saying, me, me. Oh, oh, hang on, that's somebody else. Anyway, she thought it was Megan. How about the origins of the Swedish chef? Jim Henson had previously explored the idea of a funny foreign chef at the US food fair that took place in Hamburg, Germany in 1961. In a sketch called The Chef's Salad, Sam and Friend's character Omar prepared a flaming salad while speaking in some quite incomprehensible mock German that Henson and Jerry Jewell had previously scribbled down in phonetics. Another early Muppet chef was Chef Bernardi, who hastily whipped up a 60-second salad flambe in a 1966 appearance that's a lot to say, in a 1966 appearance on The Mike Douglas Show. 66-second flambe in 66. <laughs> Dear. Anyway. Like the later Swedish chef, Henson was the main performer of Bernardi, while Frank Oz performed his hands. More of that in a second. According to Brian Henson, 
in one of his introductions for The Muppet Show. Jim Henson had this tape that he used to play was How to Speak Mock Swedish. And he used to drive to work, and I used to drive with him a lot, he said. And he would drive to work trying to make a chicken sandwich in mock Swedish, or making a turkey casserole in mock Swedish. It was the most ridiculous thing you had ever seen, and people at traffic lights used to stop and sort of look at him and a little crazy. But that was the roots of the character that would eventually become the Swedish chef. Now I talked about his hands. The Swedish chef is actually unique, in that he is performed with uncovered live hands. Look closely. Unlike a typical live hand Muppet, whose hands are felt gloves worn by the performer, the chef's hands are merely the exposed skin of the second puppeteer who assists the main performer. The main performer operates his head and his voice. As I said on The Muppet Show, Frank Oz was the regular performer of the chef's hands. This created a unique dynamic between him and Jim Henson, because normally, the assistant on a live-handed Muppet operates only the right hand. When Bill Beretta took over the character in later years, Steve Whitmire was most often the chef's hands. When the chef poses for a photo shoot, he is usually equipped with a photo puppet hand. On even rarer occasions, typical live hand Muppet gloves have been used for chefing cases when only one performer is required. Examples include the backstage exchange immediately following his sketch in the Muppet Show episode 218, and the opening conference table scene in Muppets Tonight episode 101. Yes, I have been that thorough. You can check it, it's right. Talking of his hands, did you know the chef was married? A gold wedding ring appeared on the Swedish chef's left hand as early as 2007 in an appearance on America's Got Talent. Bill Beretta gave an explanation for the ring, which belongs to Steve Whitmire, who often performed Chef's Hands, saying, The ring was a mishap at some point when Steve and I started doing it together. We couldn't reshoot what we had done once we realised it, and so it stuck. The ring has since appeared on merchandise, including a 2014 plush doll and a Diamond Select action figure, although the latter miscolours the ring as silver. In the Muppets episode Single All The Way, Fozzie asks, Chef, you've been married for such a long time. If your wife left you, do you think you could live without her? The chef deflects answering the question by offering Fozzie a koopie kick. Talking of his language, the chef's gibberish gained a life of its own with the creation of a Unix filter capable of converting standard English to chef speak in 1992. The filter quickly became a staple of hacker culture and eventually spread to the mainstream with Swedish chef translators on several websites such as Google. In 2003, Opera Software published a special Bork version of its internet browser that turned the MSN website into mock Swedish. Mozilla Firefox also contained a popular add-on called Bork 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 that allows the selective translation of text from web pages of the user's choice. It is actually also a display language there. As a one-note joke, it is revealed that Gene Stapleton, who speaks mock Swedish in episode 306 of The Muppet Show, that the Swedish chef's native language is mock Japanese. Others who have conversed in mock Swedish include Steve Martin, Danny Kerr, Fleet Scribbler, Carlton Cuse, Statler in episode 412, Brenda Song, and Lily Singh. Another one, and this is a great fact, in episode 319 of Fraggle Rock, Sprocket does an impersonation of the Swedish chef. The chef is actually one of the few regular characters from The Muppet Show, whose original dialogue from the English version remains the same in most non-English speaking countries. Another interesting chef fact, according to the inside gatefold cover for the Muppet Review, the Swedish chef was actually born in Denmark and moved to Sweden when he was a baby. A baby version of the chef makes a cameo in a picture hanging in Nanny's house with pictures of baby versions of the other Muppet characters in Muppet Babies. Actually, the Swedish chef became a character on that show too. Anyway, I think that's enough Scandinavian culinary nonsense. Time for more from the man for himself. 
then we're going to number two. Number two was a tough decision for me. This could be number one. Number one could be number two. But I think number two is a perfect number two. When we get to him, let's have a bit more chef first. Then I'll take you to a land down under, not Australia. Wait and see. First turn I make it for the jackalootin. First, I get the slicey dicey for making the pumpkin gooch. He's got the knife! I'm scared! Don't rot yourself, want this. Hey, 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 guy! Yep. You don't want to be using no knife like that. No? No, you want to use, like, uh, one of them battle axes. Ooh, the battle action. Okay. What are you doing? Relax, kid. This ain't my first time the win. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh, 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 hold it there. Hold it there. You know, you know, now that I see the actual battle axe, it looks so old-fashioned. Yeah. Now, you want to be a, a modern chef, right? Right, a modern chef. You know, with a modern kitchen? Yeah, a modern kitchen. So maybe I'm thinking you need one of them uh, chainsaw thingies. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> chainsaw. You'll never have one. Stop! I got to admit, I did not expect the chainsaw. Let me try. Hey, Pally, what you're really looking for is a bazooka. A bazooka. A bazooka. Ooh, there it is, a bazooka. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Sorry about that. Eh, I blame myself. <laughs> Uh, if we make it to Thanksgiving, yeah, you're on your own. Oh. the pumpkin pie, all the bazooka. Wow, that guy really knows how to sell it. Yeah, well, tell him to save the receipt. I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> ah, a little bit topical there, a little bit of a Halloween treat for you. And for those of you watching in audio, he turned the pumpkins into pumpkin pie, a la bazooki. Okay, let's move on. The top two. Let's keep it upbeat. We're going for... I don't know if I could do it. I think he should introduce himself. Yes, I'm not going to say his name. One of my all-time favourite, misunderstood, completely underrated characters in the original Muppet Show. Here's his act. That's all I need to say. Whoa. Now what? That was our big opening number. What do we replace it with? I don't know, but we better come up with something quick. <laughs> Jeez! I'll do my boomerang fish. I throw them away, and they come back to me. <laughs> oh. Gee, Lou, I don't know. It's kind of lacking in a Christmas theme. Okay. Gee, I don't know. It seems like the show's still missing something. I know. I'll do my boomerang fish. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. Mm -hmm. No, thanks. Sorry, Gretchen. Oh, yes. The one, the only, Lou Zealand. You're saying who? Lou who? Zealand what? Lou Zealand, one of my all-time favourite characters. Almost made number one. And simply because Lou Zealand's act involves boomerang fish. The guy's whole thing is that he can throw a fish and it will come back to him. Other than that, he looks like a coked-out Ernie that doesn't exactly have a myriad of other personality traits. But again, the Muppet mastered the physics of boomeranging literal fish. That cannot be overstated. I throw them away and they come back to me. 
Terrible New Zealand impression, but that's the best you're going to get. Lou has also appeared in all of the Muppet movies, except Kermit's Swamp Years. You've seen him, you just might not realise it. Lou's first appearance, however, was in episode 310 of The Muppet Show, where his timely boomerang fish throwing saved Kermit from being tricked into a real marriage during Miss Piggy's wedding sketch. Lou Zealand was actually only meant to appear in one episode, and he was made from a whatnot designed by Dave Goltz. However, after that, a more permanent puppet was built, and Lou Zealand became a regular character. Thank goodness. Aside from his boomerang fish act, Lou supplied the Muppets with paper towels in the Great Muppet Caper, played one of the Merry Men in the Muppets production of Robin Hood, and told Leslie Uggams how to be a great boomerang fish thrower. Well, you've got to have soul, and if you can't get soul, use halibut. That is why I love Lou Zealand. That is my sense of humour right there. But just how did Lou Zealand end up with his name? A spokesman for the Jim Henson Company said that Lou Zealand was indeed his birth name, but attempts to clarify this with the notoriously fickle Muppet himself was met with the following response. You throw the fish away and they come back to me. Mm, okay, Lou, thank you. <laughs> However, the spokesman also clarified that just like his namesake, New Zealand, Lou is surrounded by water and fish. Fish are his life, his act, boomerang fish throwing. It's the reason he joined the Muppets. That and the fact that nobody else had use for a boomerang fish throwing act. The Muppets are always on the lookout for strange talent, and that certainly defines Lou's act. Which, by now you know, involves throwing a fish away and having it come right back to you. But what does one of the Muppets headliners have to say? Enter Kermit, who narrowly avoided marrying Miss Piggy thanks to Lou Zealand. He said Lou has spent so much time in New Zealand, I hear they're thinking of changing the name of the city from Auckland to Awkward. And Disney also confirmed since their takeover, Lou Zealand remained an active character and still practiced his boomerang fish act daily. Even Lou himself granted a rare statement to Podcast 42, where he answered, without prompting, the question on everyone's lips. Where does your name come from? And he said, I love New Zealand. I'm often mistaken for it. Several Peter Jackson movies have attempted to film on me, thinking I was a beautiful country. I hope to visit New Zealand just as soon as someone there decide they need to book the world's first greatest and only professional boomerang fish throwing act. That's me, Zealand said. But why did I choose Lou Zealand as one of my favourite Muppets? Lou Zealand should not exist. Don't get me wrong, I'm awfully glad he exists. But he was never meant for this world. Picture this, the Muppet Show writers are writing the Marissa Berenson episode, which involves Miss Piggy tricking Kermit into marrying her on stage. To offset the potential seriousness of the impromptu wedding, Kermit must defuse the situation by introducing the most ridiculous act available. Head writer Jerry Jewell tasks Chris Langham with figuring out what act that would be, so he culls from his career of writing oddball humour with British comedy icons from Monty Python and The Goon Show, and seconds later announces, Lou Zealand, boomerang fish thrower, and thus a golden legend is born. It's very in keeping with the likes of The Goon Show, the British radio comedy. If you don't know who the goons are, you will learn about that in about three episodes time. I have a whole episode planned on British radio comedy. Some of this is legendary. Trust me, it's good. But not as legendary as Lou Zealand. Alright, nothing about this character really makes sense. His name is a pun that doesn't actually refer to anything about his character. His act is the sort of thing that might get a laugh once, purely due to its unexpected nature. His appearance is a hodgepodge of ideas, including a clown collar and a pointed moustache. Nothing about Lou Zealand suggests that he should have lasted for more than a few seconds on screen. Yet he did. And here we are, almost 40 years later, and Lou Zealand is a valued member of the Muppet troupe. There's something admirable about the resilience of a character like this. 
Despite every factor pushing against his perpetuation, he has endured. He has proven the strength of his character simply by being around. He has often been a force that can stand alongside Kermit and Fozzy and Gonzo, while also hanging around in the background, just waiting for someone who might need a paper towel. What makes New Zealand so great? This is a guy who is purely defined as one note. He throws boomerang fish, and that's about it. We don't know where he lives. We don't know where he gets his fish from. We don't know if he was classically trained in the art of fish throwing, or if he's a self-taught wunderkind in the science of aquatic projectiles. But the Muppets have always relished in their single joke characters. Going back as far as Yorick, remember him from Salmon Friends? He eats things. Continuing through Cookie Monster, he likes cookies. And the Count, he counts things. Count, count, ah, 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 ah. One alibut, two alibut, ah, 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 ah. Anyway, enough poor impressions, but single attribute characters have always had a place with the Muppets to the point of being fan favourites, or dare I say, actual favourites. And New Zealand is no different, as he leans into his fixation of throwing fish and subsequently having them come back. Not only is it all we need to know about him, it seems that this is all he wants us to know. He seems perfectly content being known as the guy who throws fish. Beyond that, Lou has used his one-dimensionality to embrace the bizarreness of his own existence. He brought paper towels on a heist in the Great Muppet Caper. He declared with all confidence in the world that a celebrity is not a people in the Muppets. He is unapologetic to the fact that he's different, and that makes him fearless, while also completely at ease with his own self-image. Maybe we should all be a little bit more like New Zealand. I don't mean we should take up fish throwing, but we should be comfortable with our interests, as niche as they may be. Create our own style, even if it includes wide-hipped pants, and completely ignore what the naysayers may think of us. Embrace the weird, throw a fish, and let it come right back to you. You know Lou also had other interests aside from fish throwing. Apparently he's totally into fish squeezing, but we'll not talk about that. Let's just throw those fish and let them come right back to us. Let's have one more little bit of New Zealand. And then I'm going to go straight for the number one. You might get a clue, as he is featured in the song that will follow Lou. Let's see if you can guess. Sometimes I do what I wanna. <laughs> Sometimes I do what I ought. Sometimes I feel a great notion. He lost his sardine. Well, finders, kippers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 
Okay, my number one has already featured at the opening of this episode. When I began it almost three weeks ago, I think that's how long you've been listening now. And he featured heavily in the soprano section of that clip, shall we say. Number one, Beaker. And Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, of course. But Beaker is my number one all-time favourite Muppet. But Bunsen Honeydew is kind of a monster of a Muppet. People trust him because he looks like a scientist and also a honeydew, and I'd never really thought about his name, that he looked like his name. But his experiments are constantly leading to the pain and suffering of his assistant, Beaker. Beaker is the hapless assistant to Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. He made his first appearance in Muppet Lab sketches during the second season of The Muppet Show. Kermit the Frog describes Beaker by saying, If somebody has to get hurt, it's almost always Beaker. Beaker has been shrunk, cloned, punched, deflated, zapped, turned invisible and blown up in the pursuit of scientific truth. And still he returns to the lab to meet Meep another day. Prior to Beaker's debut, Dr. Honeydew appeared in Muppet Lab segments by himself, but the timid assistant added a new level of comedy to the sketches. Dr. Honeydew's experiments and inventions always seem to go awry, and Beaker is their perpetual victim. But he always comes back for more, though he does appear to exist in a state of constant fear. Starting in the third season, Beaker was occasionally seen as an assistant stagehand to Beauregard. On the show, Beaker has sung Feelings, and accompanied by the Swedish chef and animal, Danny Boy. On a few occasions, such as in The Great Muppet Caper and The Fantastic Miss Piggy Show, Beaker has also been electrocuted, causing his eyes to light up. Some of Beaker's more memorable roles in the specials have been in The Muppets Go to the Movies, in which Beaker plays the role of the Angel of Death in a foreign film, and in The Muppets at Walt Disney World, where he gets a bucket stuck in his head throughout the special. As seen in Muppets Tonight, Beaker does a little Richard impression in episode 208, and knows how to beatbox for sure. In a 2004 internet poll sponsored by the BBC and the British Association for the Advancement of Science, Beaker and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew were voted Britain's favourite cinematic scientists. They beat Star Trek's Mr. Spock, their closest rival, by a margin of 2 to 1, and won 33% of the 43,000 votes cast. In July of 2008, Beaker starred in the popular award-winning viral video that you heard at the beginning, Ode to Joy. Beaker performed the song in a split-screen number playing violin, timpani, metronome and vocals, replacing the lyrics with extended meep meep meeping. Inevitably though, disaster ensues. The video was nominated in the music category of the 2009 Webby Awards, as well as the People's Voice Award. Beaker won the Webby Award and accepted the award at the June the 8th ceremony. In 2010, Beaker recorded a performance of Dust in the Wind, accompanying himself on guitar, but he is interrupted by a cascade of critical YouTube-style pop-up comments. As we know, Beaker normally communicates through a series of high-pitched meep-meep-meep noises. In books and merchandise, it's often spelled as meep, M-W-E-P, but sometimes meep-meep, meep-meep-meep-meep-meep-meep-meep-meep-meep-meep. Oh, almost got my Beaker on there. In some of his earlier appearances, Beaker's language sounded more like that of someone who was too terrified to get any real words out. His meeping language began in episode 219. He did manage to muster bye-bye in the banana sharpener Muppet Lab segment, 
In the Muppet movie, his words were the closest they ever got to being real words, as his line, sadly temporary, echoing Bunsen, was quite clear, as well as his line, makeup ready, and his radiant wonderfulness line from the Muppets Wizard of Oz. He actually reused the sadly temporary line in the Muppets from Space. In the Muppet Christmas Carol, Beaker let out an oh dear, he also muttered an oh no before falling headfirst in episode 107 of the Jim Henson Hour. In the video game Muppet Monster Adventure, during the opening cutscene where Robin is told that his friends were turned into monsters, Robin says oh no, then Beaker replies oh no. He doesn't have a lot to say, but when he says it, it always means something. But one key element to Beaker's development was that, unlike Bunsen, who was rarely seen outside the labs, Beaker took more of an involvement in the show. He was often seen backstage, as I said, and had cameo bits in other numbers and sketches. But anyway, I think that brings to the end the top 10. Beaker is my number one. Lou Zealand, my number two, could have been my number one. It was all so close, the whole top 10 was very close. But I do believe I've been recording for 47 days now. But there's still more to say about the Muppets. Shall I go on? Of course I should. If you've made it this far, what will another few hours make? Let's move on from the individual characters. And how about some of the greatest Muppet Show sketches and guests of all time? I'm still only taking into consideration the Muppet Show itself though. So how about a sketches and guests top 10, another top 10, two for the price of one. For the sake of brevity though, I will try and get through this as fast as I can. I was originally going to have a list of top 10 sketches followed by the list of top 10 guests, but I thought I'd make it a little bit more difficult and try and save some time. I decided to combine the two lists to one epic list of Muppet Show Mania. So here we go, we're going to keep this quick. Number 10, the Robin Hood episode. When actress Lynn Redgrave appeared on the show, the Muppets put on a production of Robin Hood for the entirety of the episode. There are a lot of amazing moments in this episode, but there are two in particular that stand out. The first is Fozzie really getting into his role as Little John and leading everyone else in cavorting, all while saying cavort repeatedly, as we see what funny things the others are up to in the camp. The second is one of those times the Muppets take a quiet moment to perform a sweet song, as Redgrave and Kermit sing to each other in their roles as Maid Marian and Robin Hood. Number 9, I told you this was going to be quick, the Muppet Show has one of the best openings in all of TV. From the first notes of the song to Gonzo's recurring gag at the end, this fantastic introduction to the show is a classic. In season 1, it involves Gonzo striking the O of the show like a drum with a drumstick. This had to be included because it really sums up the irreverence and mayhem of the whole show. So season 1, episode 1, Gonzo's drumstick explodes, completely blackening him out. The O also made a foghorn noise, it chimed like Westminster, it floated into the air, Gonzo strikes it with his head, hits it with a boxing glove as a ringside bell sounds, Crazy Harry causes it to explode, the green frackle appears and strikes Gonzo instead of the O, Gonzo shoots the O with a blunderbuss, in season 2 he would appear in the O and play his trumpet only for various items to come out of the trumpet, such as balloons, bubbles, water, flames, green smoke, red smoke, orange smoke, it was also blown up by Crazy Harry until the season finale when a perfect note comes out of Gonzo's trumpet. Gonzo shakes his head as if in annoyance, the audience cheers. In season 3, 4 and 5, he returned with the trumpet, only for more smoke, butterflies, a plane, flames, blue spirits, and even at one point Gonzo says, I'm not even going to try it. Then the trumpet plays itself. Kermit also makes a couple of appearances and upstages Gonzo with his own trumpet. There are air raid sounds, flute sounds, a rooster sound, a typewriter sound, penguins appear, a cow appears. Gonzo proceeds to blow the cow's horn. A TV first, I'm sure. A horse appears, who says, you called? Snakes, dogs, even a duck appears and gives Gonzo a kiss. Rats appear, to which he responds, ah rats. Gonzo's dental plate sticks to the trumpet, Gonzo, the embarrassment. Even Gonzo's head blows up on one occasion and then appears in another corner of the O. 
There are many more of these openings which culminate in the final episode involving Gonzo blowing a screaming banana instead of his trumpet. So many openings, I'm not going to play them all. So number 8, we're making this fast now, Star Wars meets Pigs in Space. That's the last time I'll do that, I promise. It makes perfect sense that when actor Mark Hamill guest starred on the show, he'd make an appearance on Pigs in Space. Hamill as Luke Skywalker is joined by C-3PO and R2-D2 aboard the Swine Trek, as they borrow the ship to go rescue Chewbacca. The interactions with Captain Link Hogthrob, Doctor Strange Pork and Piggy, dressed like Princess Leia, are priceless. Number 7, another guest, this time John Cleese. Muppet fan Cleese co-wrote the 1977 episode, which starts with him bound, gagged and forced to take part. In the recurring sketch Pigs, no no no, Pigs in Space, he plays a galactic pirate with a nagging bird on his shoulder, asking it, do you want to be an ex-parrot? He pulls Gonzo back into shape after a cannonball catching stunt, stretches his arm, that's a really good one if you can find it on YouTube. The finale sees Cleese refusing to perform various musical numbers, first a show tune, then a Wagnerian opera, and finally a Mexican maraca solo. As the credits roll, he reappears plugging fictional album John Cleese, A Man and His Music. Keep going, number six, well six and a half, one more guest I wanted to squeeze in. Rita Moreno. The Broadway veteran's appearance was hugely significant in Muppet Show history. In 1976, in one of the very first episodes, she parodied her own diva image by staging bust-ups with several Muppets and sang an unbelievable finger-clicking version of Fever, which Animal ruined with bursts of wild drumming. Moreno ended up smashing Animal's head between two cymbals. My kind of woman, he swooned. Moreno won an Emmy for it, and this meant stars suddenly wanted to appear on The Muppet Show. As I said earlier, the Series 2 appearance of Rudolf Nureyev sealed its status as a celebrity favourite for the next five years. OK, that was six and a half, let's have number six. Fozzie helps Rolf play Claire de Lune. The Muppet Show shined when it combined comedy with classical music during Rolf's performances. It was always fun to see the musical dog play some beautiful piece of music on the piano only to have something unforeseen happen during his act. This is a favourite of those moments. Whenever Fozzie wants to help, things don't exactly go to plan. Okay, number five, the penultimate guest in this list, and the one and only Julie Andrews. In 1978, the episode saw Kermit find a live cow backstage. While he and Scooter investigate, Gonzo falls in love with it. Swedish chef plans to cook it, and the flying zucchini brothers fire it from a cannon. Julie Andrews then complains to Kermit that she's lost her cow and sings Sound of Music favourite, The Lonely Goatherd. That's all you're getting of that. With Muppets dressed in Swiss costume, Kermit as a prince in an alpine chateau and yodelling farm animals. Great scene. Let's keep moving. Number four, Statler and Waldorf heckle Milton Berle. Statler and Waldorf heckling from their balcony was always one of the best parts of the shows, as you've heard throughout this episode. No one was safe from their criticism. Not even famous comedian Milton Berle, but his interaction with the two old men is one of the funniest from the show. Go watch it, find it on YouTube, it's very funny. The last guest on the list is in at number three, Harry Belafonte. For his 1979 guest spot, the Calypso King sings the Banana Boat Song and has a drum duel with Animal, at the end of which they both pass out. However, activist Belafonte also insisted on doing his lesser known Turn the World Around because he wanted to communicate a more meaningful message. The Muppet Chorus are made to resemble traditional African tribal masks, and the five-minute spiritual anthem about togetherness proved so powerful. 
even Statler and Waldorf join in. It was actually the show's producers' favourite out of all of the musical numbers they did. So beloved that Belafonte reprised it at Jim Henson's funeral. Number two, multiple beakers search for Bunsen. It was always funny to see two sketches combined on The Muppet Show, and it added to the sense of the show all taking place in one night in the same theatre. For example, the Swedish chef had great cooking segments, and Beaker and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew were fantastic in Muppet Labs. But when an experiment multiplies Beaker and Bunsen hides from them on the chef's set, you get the best of both sketches in one hilarious moment. Okay, my number one scene from The Muppet Show, my number one sketch from The Muppet Show, whatever you want to call it. Let's talk about what might be one of the most perfect two minutes in television history. Yes, I'm referring to, good grief, the comedians are bare. The Muppets have done some astonishing things over the years. They convinced the world that a puppet frog can ride a bicycle. They made a lady pig a movie star. They completely revolutionised television, the art of puppetry, and the world of comedy as we know it. But still, the most impressive thing they ever did involved nothing more than a clever piece of writing and two gifted performers. The gag in this bit is brilliant. Fozzie wants to tell a joke, Kermit inadvertently botches it, and it turns out that the joke was a dud all along. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could ever fathom writing something with such well-thought-out layers. I can only imagine how difficult it must be to write for Fozzy Bear. He's a comedian who tells bad jokes. If you only write bad jokes, the character is equally as dull to us as he is to the groaning Muppet audience. If you write good jokes, he runs the risk of accidentally becoming a success. So you've got to write bad jokes being told in a funny way. That sounds impossible, and for most of us, it probably is. Meanwhile, this is a perfect example of Kermit as the ideal straight man. He starts out just as fresh to Fozzie's plan as we are, with a natural slow burn that builds to an epic explosion. And all that to an iconic sheesh face as he sets up the punchline. And we are all Kermit, as Fozzie rejoices, unaware that he just bombed. Jim Henson and Frank Oz are in perfect sync with this bit. Their banter is so natural, yet it must be well rehearsed, since the beats are so specific. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better example of why these two are one of the greatest comedy duos of all time. You don't often think of them as a comedy duo because of the puppets or the Muppets, but they are. So let's talk about that punchline and its lead-in. Good grief is such an old expression, and it's funny to hear it repeated over and over. I also forget that Fozzie is a bear, despite all his bear-like qualities, because he's a Muppet first and not a wild animal catching salmon in a river, which is why Kermit's line comes as a shock reiterating what someone might actually say if they discovered that the comedian is ursine in nature and Fozzie, like many Muppets, is consistently near naked, which is another fact that I often forget. But unlike Kermit or Rolf, he's not quite nude, which makes him the only main character who can actually live up to this stupid punchline. Perhaps there's more to it than just a misunderstanding and a naked bear. Maybe it's a commentary on race, and how no one should pass judgement or jump to conclusions based on race, gender or species. Or maybe it's an argument in favour of the nudist lifestyle and how someone can feel free from the shackles of clothing with a society-friendly compromise of a hat and a necktie. Or maybe it's all about communication, as why we as members of the human race need to do a better job at listening to each other and maybe learn a new language to bring the world together as one. But most likely, it's none of those things. And I've just wasted a whole paragraph making stuff up. To add to the sketch's impressiveness, you can see how tight the camera frame is around the two characters the lack of camera movement, and the fact that there are no edits. This is the reason good grief wouldn't fly today. Modern television viewers apparently require more excitement to keep them entertained. The production value is, dare I say, boring. 
The good thing is that it allows for more attention to be placed on the writing and the performances, which are the real heroes of this story. Although the sketch premiered in the Harvey Corman episode of The Muppet Show, it also appeared in audio version on The Muppet Show album. I believe on YouTube you can hear the album version, just the audio. Give it a listen, don't worry about the visuals. The audio version and the video version have two key differences. First is that the audio version has no laugh track. Not that we need a fake audience to tell us where the jokes are, but the album version has a few awkward pauses because of it. Still, I think the lack of laughs helps keep the focus on the precision timing from Jim and Frank. It's so very impressive to hear their energy build and implode. The other difference is in Kermit's final line. In the broadcast version, despite his reluctance to play along with Fozzie's game, Kermit delivers his last good grief with a large amount of energy. But in the audio version, Jim re-recorded the line to allow for Kermit to take the energy way down and to add a heap of disdain. Kermit is beyond done with this ridiculous bit and with Fozzie's poor instructions. And there's so much more to this sketch that I didn't even touch upon. Fozzie telling Kermit, don't grumble, a rare case of Fozzie getting angry at Kermit. There's Kermit's attempt at really selling his performance, right up until the point he doesn't anymore. Fozzie affectionately calling Kermit, frog of my heart, which is just adorable. Obviously, I could continue to go on and on about this sketch. I mean, I already have. Every time I see it or hear it, I'm blown away by its simplicity and its complexity. The writing and performances exemplify the Muppets at their best. It is truly among the most perfect Muppet moments of all time. And it's a great reminder that Fozzie Bear is not actually naked, thanks to that strategically placed necktie. And if you need any more reminders, here it is. Let's do it. Okay, time once again for that furry, fuzzy, funny man, fabulous, freewheeling, fast and frantic, Fozzie Bear! Hey, 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 hey! Oh, wait, 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 Froggy, not what? so fast. Tonight, I am going to use your assistance. Oh, yeah? Yes, sir. You and I are going to tell the world's funniest joke. Uh, this right? is all spontaneous, unrehearsed, right, Froggy? It's unrehearsed, yes. Okay, okay. Now, frog of my heart, yes. you will just wait until I say the word here. When you hear me say the word here, you will rush up to me and say, Good grief, the comedian's a bear. Good grief, the comedian's a bear. Check. When you say the word here. Right. Gotcha. Okay, now then. Hiya, hiya, hiya. You're a wonderful looking audience. It's a pleasure to be here. Good I... grief, the comedian's a bear. Not yet. But you just said here. That was the wrong here. Which is the right here? The other here. Sure. <sighs> go, go, go. Okay. Hey, hey, folks. This is a story you're gonna love to hear. Good grief, the comedian's a bear! Will you stop that? But you said here! Not that here! No wish here! Another here! How am I gonna know? You'll know when you hear! Good grief, the comedian's a bear! Alright, alright. Listen, yes. you will know when I point to you. I'm never gonna work with another bear. Alright, don't grumble! I'm never gonna work with an animal. <clears throat> Say, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the theater. At the stage door, I passed a bunch of Muppet fans, and suddenly I hear... Good grief, the comedian's a bear. No, he's a nut. He's a wearer and a necktie. Ah, 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 ah. Oh, I'm so funny. Amazing. That is such a good sketch. Listen to it properly, and I'm sure you will appreciate it. Anyway... I think that's enough of the original Muppet Show, maybe? But I've got to do it. A quick rundown of the Muppet movies next. I can't give up on this topic just yet. Let's do the feature movies in order of merit. Now over the last four decades, or is it five, there have been eight Muppet features. 
not including side projects from Henson or Oz like D The Dark Crystal, for example. So let's dive into a quick top 10, uh, top 8, according to Podcast 42. Here's your top 8 Muppet feature movies. Number 8, Muppets from Space. Based on a song from the Muppet movie where Gonzo sings about flying through space to a place he's only dreamed about. Muppets from Space follows Gonzo's quest to find out where he's from. Not the greatest Muppet offering, although I would still watch all of them regardless. In terms of Jim Henson-style wonderment and overall cleverness, Muppets from Space comes up short. It's entertaining enough, but lacks the real magic of the Muppets. It's still good though, I still watch it. Number 7, The Muppets, 2011. The 2011 revival of The Muppets was their first film in over a decade, and exists in part as a referendum on the characters. When they band together to save their old theatre, the Muppets have to convince a lot of people that anyone will even care enough to watch a celebrity film telethon. That core argument ought to have been resolved before the film was released. It exists, thus there's clearly some audience for the Muppets. That said, the real issue with this movie, which is perfectly decent, is that the Muppets are supporting players in their own film. Jason Segel, who had employed puppetry in the Judd Apatow produced comedy Forgetting Sarah Marshall, stars as Gary, an ultimate Muppet fanboy with a brother. Walter, who is himself a Muppet. They learn of the Muppet Theatre being set for demolition and try to get our heroes back together. But the journey in the film is really about Gary and Walter, who are two halves of a fairly dull straight man. The final act of the film, a kind of recreation of the Muppet show on the big screen, is the highlight, but it takes a while to get there. Number 6, Muppets Most Wanted in 2014, the sequel to 2011 The Muppets, and it begins immediately after its predecessor, with the Muppets triumphant after having won back their old theatre. As they realise that Disney has greenlit a sequel, until as Gonzo says, Tom Hanks agrees to do Toy Story 4, a very prescient comment indeed, the Muppets embark upon a world tour with a shady new agent played by Ricky Gervais. Soon Kermit has been replaced by the world's most devious criminal mastermind, Constantine, who is the spitting image of our hero, with the exception of a well-placed mole. Kermit is carted off to a grim Siberian prison overseen by a warden, Tina Fey, with a soft spot for the frog as Constantine tries to steal the crown jewels of the United Kingdom. Muppets Most Wanted is not a perfect film by any means. The storyline with Constantine requires the other Muppets to not realise Kermit's gone, which is a bit of a stretch, but it's a vastly funnier, weirder film than its predecessor. Plus, Brett McKenzie's songs are loopier, and this is the only film on this list that will give you the image of Ray Otter as a grizzled prisoner singing to Working in a Coal Mine. A pretty decent watch, and hopefully not the last movie outing for the Muppets. Number 5. Muppets Take Manhattan, 1984. Though the Muppet crew is reunited for this film, in which they head off to the Big Apple after graduating college, there's something missing here. It's a sweet enough film, but the problem is that the Muppets, at their best, aren't always sweet. Here's a film where, at one point, we see what the characters would have been like as infants. That fantasy scene inspired the eventual Muppet Babies show, and while it suggests that this is more than an appropriate film for the younger set, it doesn't have that same liveliness as previous Muppet movies. Where the first two Muppet movies, which are higher on the list, felt cheeky and anarchic and playful, the Muppets Take Manhattan feels safer. It's not outright bad, none of these are bad. It's part because hearing Jim Henson and Frank Oz sing songs like Together Again is enjoyable enough, but the Muppets excel at being better than just enjoyable enough, making this 1984 movie something of a muted affair. Number 4. The Great Muppet Caper Unlike the 1979 film The Muppet Movie, the follow-up film The Great Muppet Caper is a European set adventure wherein the Muppets play characters but do so knowingly enough to introduce the whole setup during the opening credits. This 1981 film is as happy to break the fourth wall as its predecessor was, towing the line between being an outright parody of a romantic thriller and trying to be halfway romantic itself. 
That said, the Great Muppet Caper is still very funny. Poking fun at itself and the tropes of modern Hitchcockian thrillers, the two main human performers, Diana Rigg and Charles Grodin, acquit themselves more than adequately. After delivering a lot of plot description, Diana Rigg says to a baffled Miss Piggy, it's plot exposition, it has to go somewhere. The overall effect of the film is akin to when The Muppet Show would have been an extended story-based sketch. It's daring and impressive, but sometimes shorter bursts of humour can be better. We're into the top three already, I told you this would be quick. Number three, The Muppet Movie, 1979. There's an incredible balance that the men and women behind The Muppets are able to strike in their first feature. Like the variety show that inspired the film and led it to becoming one of the year's most successful films at the box office, the Muppet movie has to be wild, chaotic and anarchic. But Jim Henson and his team of Muppeteers also wanted to be earnest in their depiction of how Kermit the Frog met Fozzie Bear, Miss Piggy and the Great Gonzo, and eventually became rich and famous. The result is one of the most charming and hilarious family films ever made. This movie is extremely funny. Whether or not the references all land in 2021, the way they might have in 1979, I remember watching this as a kid, even now I would laugh my head off to it. The Muppets themselves have plenty of good gags, as do many of the celebrity cameo performers. The blend of hilarity and sincerity, it's Muppets at their finest. But number two for me, let's move on, it's Muppet Treasure Island. You all know what number one is, I'm sure. The 1996 film ostensibly operates within the same basic template as the number one movie, four years earlier. It's an adaptation of a well-known British novel featuring one recognisable British actor in a key role, and also featuring a lot of Muppets doing their thing. In the same vein as the more delightfully chaotic sketches on The Muppet Show, Muppet Treasure Island is a lot goofier, more meta and gleefully silly than any of the other cinematic Muppet projects in the previous years. The premise is familiar enough to anyone who read Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, a boy named Jim Hawkins embarks upon a big adventure to find buried treasure while running afoul of a nefarious pirate named Long John Silver. Here, Silver is played with over-the-top gusto by the one and only Tim Curry. He's as outsized as the Muppets themselves are. Curry's performance is matched by lots of goofy humour from the Muppets, from the warped version of a financier played by Fozzie Bear, whose character speaks to an invisible man that lives in his finger, to Jim's friends Gonzo and Rizzo the Rat, the former of whom at one point is stretched out as a form of torture that he delights in. Muppet Treasure Island does also feature a romantic subplot for Kermit and Miss Piggy, but this film's strengths are in its wacky, idiotically funny tone. Okay, you all know what my number one movie is. My number one Muppet movie. The Muppet Christmas Carol in 1992. This was an easy choice for me, and also is probably one of the greatest Christmas movies too. This is always a much watch for me during the holiday season. The Muppet's first Disney film, adapted from the Charles Dickens iconic novel, and it's in its own way quite faithful to the written word, with Michael Caine stepping in as the penny-pinching miser Ebenezer Scrooge, who learns a valuable lesson or two courtesy of some ghosts on Christmas Eve. There are five seconds in The Muppet Christmas Carol though, that are one of the greatest five seconds in cinema history. In them, after a brief but jovial argument, Rizzo the Rat leads gently forward and kisses Gonzo the Great's nose. It is a stunning feat of cinema, a raw and intimate moment captured on camera. But it's just really, really cute and properly, properly funny. These tiny magical moments are what make the film so enjoyable year after year. Much has been made of how the movie is remarkably faithful, as I said, to the Charles Dickens novel. But when it deviates from the story, for five seconds at a time, it's a masterpiece that rivals the author's own. I don't know how many times I've watched this movie, or when it first came into my life. It's as constant and true as a satsuma in a stocking. Although I wish I could watch this movie every time I had a bad day, I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. As said Ebenezer. A perverse sense of duty to the holiday season means I hold off watching the film until at least 
the 1st of December every year, and every year it becomes increasingly difficult. Once Advent arrives, I watch the film maybe a couple of times in December, usually before I travel home for Christmas if I can, and then I watch it with my family, if I'm with them. So I must have seen the movie more than 40 times. A terribly low number, I think. But still, the score is the soundtrack to Christmas. From decorating the tree, to making gingerbread houses, to belting out songs in the shower. God bless it, every damn second. There are things in it that, if you think about them properly, truly and deeply for the first time, expose the fallacy of ordered society. Look closely at a £5 note, for example, and you will see the small print. I promise to pay the bearer, on demand, the sum of £5. The paper has no value. The paper is a promise. Now look at a carton of milk and question why it's cool to drink other animals' breast milk, provided that animal is a cow and definitely, definitely not a cat. Do not drink cat milk. Clapping is just slapping your body parts together to indicate that something is good. You have to pretend to be asleep before you can actually fall asleep. Mickey has a dog, but Goofy is a dog. Another thing that exposes our society for the flawed, disgusting, illogical mess that it is. The Muppet Christmas Carol is not simply widely regarded as the greatest Christmas movie ever made. The Muppet Christmas Carol has 7.7 .7 stars on IMDb and a 74% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. And yet, we are not all rioting in the streets. Why not? Let's get together, people. <laughs> According to Brian Henson, son of the late great Muppet creator Jim, when Michael Caine was first approached to play Scrooge in The Muppet Christmas Carol, he said, I'm going to play the movie like I'm working with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And don't throw bloody spears at me. No, he didn't say that last bit. Like Scrooge himself, Caine strayed true to his word in one original scene, actually later cut from theatrical releases because it was considered too sad for children. Caine, as the elderly Scrooge, sings behind a flashback of his old sweetheart, Belle, It was almost love. It was almost always. It was like a fairy tale. We live out you and I, and yes, some dreams come true, and yes, some dreams fall through. Here Scrooge stops singing to sob, choked up and overpowered by remorse. Without hyperbole, I can say this scene as a truly remarkable piece of acting. Perhaps the finest piece of acting to take place in a dressing gown and a nightcap. Imagine acting so well that your scene is too sad for children. They don't even etch that on an Oscar, but they should. Yet for every scene in The Muppet Christmas Carol that makes you cry, there are five more that make you laugh. There are lines that have cemented the film's cult classic status. Light the lamp, not the rat. But there are many other underappreciated bangers. Hey, I'm being stolen, cries out a talking melon who's being stolen in the opening credits. Later, mother, 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 I thought you said we couldn't eat the chestnuts until Father and Tiny Tim get home. It's the greatest line ever uttered by a pig. Speaking of small Timothy, can any other actor or adaptation claim to rival the gut punch of a bright green baby frog with a cough? <laughs> the damn thing even wears a Baker Boy cap. He's a slightly different shade of green from his brother and his dad, because he's not just a frog, he's a very sick frog. How sick is he, you ask? Well, he was in bed with his sister. No, no, that's a terrible joke. It ruined the mood. Anyway, I'm going to find that scene so that I can cry and I can feel I can truly understand the complicated, undeniable beauty of human existence. How could it not be one of the greatest ever movies? When the closing scenes, Michael Caine gives his red scarf to Beaker in an act of raw, pure love. Meep, 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 meep. When Shakespeare himself wants to rise from the dead and apologise for not coming up with no cheeses for us Mises, when after 29 years, it hasn't aged a day. Okay, that just about wraps up our journey through The Muppet Show. The Muppet movies, the characters, the predecessors, the puppeteers. If you've made it this far, Thank you very much for bearing with me. And we're going to end the show. But how about a few quick jokes first? I know some of you do appreciate these. 
Okay, let's stick with Victorian Britain, shall we? I heard this one recently. I hadn't heard it for a while. I thought, oh, that would be a good one for the show. It's all about Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, the well-known detective, and his sidekick, Dr. Watson, are lying in bed one night. Together, of course. Sherlock runs off to the kitchen and comes back with a jar of lemon curd. Quickly, he turns to Watson, bends him over onto his knees, and starts smearing the lemon curd all around his butthole. Sherlock! What the hell are you doing, man? Dr. Watson gasps. Sherlock smiles and replies, It's a lemon entry, my dear Watson. A lemon entry. Okay, I think that's about enough for today. No, no, I've got one more. I heard this one the other day as well. Another classic. Two cowboys were lost in the desert. They were starving, hungry, and finally they see a tree in the distance, draped in bacon. Look, says one of the cowboys. It's a bacon tree. We're saved. He runs towards the tree, but is suddenly shot down in a hail of bullets. With his last dying breath, he stutters. It's, it's, it's not a bacon tree. It's a ham bush. And on that note, I'll leave you with some but quotes. I've got the perfect quote to finish this episode. Okay, until next time, I'll leave you with the one and only Beaker. Ha, 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 ha.